So how are you feeling? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're not listening to Guitar Talk. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Brian De Palma on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So good evening and welcome to the final episode of the 12th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, Brian Russell De Palma was born not far from you, actually, in Newark, New Jersey, just one year before America's belated entry into World War II in September of 1940. His father was an orthopedic surgeon, and his mother was a muti, so there may be some distant relation to Italian sex goddess Ornella Muti, probably best known domestically for her Princess Aura in 1980's Campy Flesh Gordon. Apparently, the elder De Palma was a bit of a prick, and young Brian was a vindictive pervert because he used to play unofficial private dick following Dad around to record him fucking other girls. Good, healthy family dynamic there. <laughs> May explain some of his films. He also apparently claimed to be a Radio Shack hobbyist who, quote, built computers in high school, which to me seems kind of absurd given that computing was extremely basic and required room-sized reel-to-reel mainframes straight into the late 70s. And DePaul was in high school in the early to mid-50s, so mm, I don't know about that story. So I kind of call bullshit on that one, though it does explain Angie Dickinson's weird garage hobbyist son in Dress to Kill. He was, however, a physics student at Columbia in the early 60s, before doing graduate studies in a very different field, namely theater, in newly co-ed Vassar-style all-women's college, a, quote, Sarah Lawrence College. No, I never heard of it either. He very likely foisted Robert De Niro on the world, so you can thank him or not, as his first handful of hippie student films were among, if not, De Niro's very first film roles, stuff like the bizarre Hey Mom, but they're rather disappointing, the ones I've seen, both for fans of either man or by comparison to legitimately subversive political student films of the day. He claimed to be aping Godard, which is entirely possible given just how terrible and overrated a filmmaker old Jean-Luc tends to be, the Bardot-starring and comparatively narratively-driven contempt arguably aside. Thankfully, though, his later work tended to vacillate between wildly popular Hollywood stuff like Carrie, Carlito's Way, Scarfish, and Mission Impossible, and what I consider far superior autorist attempts to almost slavishly emulate Hitchcock, but upping the sleaze and blatant sexual overtones, sufficient to be more accurately considered not so much a cynical copycat, like some did, as he is very much our generation's Hitchcock, an important if subtle difference. And it's those films that I always loved and let me to suggest them as a good subject for coverage here. He had a bit of an ensemble cast he'd use over and over in his more personal and autorist films, like Nancy Allen, who became his wife for four years of their collaboration, experimental theater vet William Finley, and Dennis Franz, not to mention his multi-film use of the young Robert De Niro, as mentioned earlier. He seemed to take on big-budget junk to fund his better work, but has declined in more recent years into solely working with the former, alternating with occasional sub-skinemax, not-really-erotic thriller flops, 
which is actually kind of disappointing. But you can't take away the power, the obvious referentiality of certain of his work to folks like Hitchcock, the French Nouvelle Vogue, even the Italian Giallo in films like Sisters, Obsession, Blowout, Dress to Kill, and Body Double. More good, kinky, well-crafted films than far inferior modern directors could ever dream of having in their oath. So whatever you think about his earliest stuff or much his later stuff, the guy is really a good director and is definitely worth discussing here, which is why we're doing it. So, like I said, I'm Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. And also, I uh, wanted to make a note of this. Supposedly and allegedly, De Palma was a, a big fan of uh, Golden Age pornography, the better stuff, like the ones that had stories, that had good actors, like uh, John Leslie and uh, Richard Pacheco and, and you know, uh, Annette Haven. For those who are familiar with that, you know what I'm talking about, adult films. It, it's been rumored and only been rumored over the years that he might have ghost-directed a few things, some of the better films, but it's, you know, widely conjectured, which leads to Body Double, a yes. film we'll cover later on, where he actually wanted to star adult film actresses because he thought some of them he, he was considering for the film were actually good enough to perform in the movie as thespians. Although his film was centered in the... The, the the world of the adult films so that was that was interesting so i wanted to make a note of that um yeah when you brought that up i was going to say it's well known that he had intended body double to be as close to or actually being hardcore pornography as he could possibly get but of course you know the studio said no so he did what he did which is still a pretty damn sleazy kinky film but, it's still uh, pretty weird and and the other thing was there's it's funny because there were a couple of pictures in and around that time that feature very very similar themes and, and not the actresses he intended so that was curious okay so where are we starting with this i'm actually going to start back in 1968 with murder a la mod okay, fine not half so interesting as George Romero's early films, or even Francis Ford Coppola's moody Southern Gothic Dementia 13, this one is Brian De Palma's first film, lends smack dab in the middle of the hippie movement in 1968. Bearing a lot in common with something weird fair like Satan's Bed or the Joseph P. Mara films, this gritty, no-budget affair comes across like one of those shitty casting couch porn uh, things so ubiquitous nowadays, crossed with the likes of early Doris Wishman, Gerald and Trader, the Finleys, and John and Lemma Merrow. There's a lot of random chatter, a plethora of hard-bitten females undressing to their old lady white bras and granny panties, and a shit ton of sub-Andy Milligan cattiness, chatter, and seedy characters flitting about. De Palma pal William Finley, who go on to at least six more films with the man, as well as Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive, and we did a show on Toby Hooper, of course, not only co-stars, but provides the theme song. It's kind of random, but essentially about a no-budget sexploitation filmmaker, Jared Martin, whose short filmography more or less concludes with Lucio Fulci's Enigma, which we discussed in our Fulci show, whose no-name starlets are being stabbed on screen by an ice-pick-wielding weirdo-slash-comedian, Finley. Of course, someone is killing the girls off-screen using the same method, and Finley is acting weird, hiding inside a travel case that rolls down the street to bump into girls, and then he leaps out and stabs them with the ice pick, which may be the same prop as he uses in the film, and pushing them around town to a local cemetery. Of course, there's another killer in the small cast, and three guesses who it is. It's a very typical something weird acquisition, and so New York sexploiter slash roughy, it stinks of pretzel carts and hot chestnuts. But is it in anything worthy of De Palma, at least the pointedly Hitchcockian and often quite seedy classics he dropped fairly consistently from Obsession through Body Double? Nah. 
With a bizarre atonal modern classical soundtrack and disjointed camera work, weird dialogue and narrative flow, it's barely watchable for fans of Doris Wishman cinematographer C. Davis Smith, who directed a few rather gritty sex borders like File X for Sex, and whose bickering commentary track with Wishman on the disastrous A Night to Dismember disc has to be heard to be believed. It's watchable. It certainly is okay if you're into this sort of, you know, something weird sexploiter, New York style, but it's nothing to write home about. Yeah, I pretty much have to agree with you. It's also the first time you, you would see, uh, one, one of, among one of the first times you would see Jennifer Salt in a film, and I always liked her. She's been in very few films. Uh, more, She would become more of a TV actress, and even then not very prolific. She would perform like once a year in a in you know, like Murder She Wrote or uh, Family Ties. I kind I don't know whatever happened with her. Uh, hearsay says that she was kind of fragile, fragile, and so uh, would explain after Sisters anything is possible. <laughs> the Brian De Palma film Sisters, but uh, she was very good in Play It Again, Sam and Brewster McCloud. But she she was in a couple of De Palma things for a bit, and then uh, she wouldn't return until Sisters, which is like, wow, what a performance that was. <laughs> yeah, greetings. Next- well, I did not see Greetings or The Wedding Party, but I did uh, see Hi Mom on YouTube. So, But if you want to cover those two, go right ahead. Yeah, Greetings is a 1968 film. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture about the draft. Okay, Vietnam War draft, folks. Um, so what I, what I understand was the first American film to receive an X rating by the MPAA, although they downgraded it to an R, because back then anything, you know. Yeah, it does not necessarily mean sex. It was just kind of. It's like rough language and a lot of rough language back in the day. Robert De Niro, Garrett Graham, a frequent. Uh, Co-star. <laughs> no, a frequent De Brian De Palmer. Uh, collaborator. You know, yeah. Act, act, collaborator. Cast actor. member. <laughs> Cast member, yes. Thank you. <laughs> So what is it about? It's it's an episodic picture. Yo, it's like, it's very low budget. It's almost home movie-ish. And it's about a bunch of different things. Kennedy assassination, being drafted, Vietnam War, and amateur filmmaking. And uh, De Niro's playing a young Jewish guy. So I thought that was interesting. It's funny, though, when he was a young, hungry actor. He did really interesting work. De Niro turned up again in The Wedding Party. It's another one you said you didn't see, yeah, right? Yeah, I didn't see that one either. Who was in this? Jill Clayburn, uh, Jennifer Salt, who I just mentioned. and But Robert's not really the star of this picture, though he's highly uh, featured on the posters. I think he, he rocketed to fame very quickly working for uh, Scorsese. Mm-hmm. So after a while, this is a 1969 picture. Within two years, he's... Uh, he became very well known. And so uh, Mean Streets. And so uh, people, you know, right away, if a film is like being delayed, being released, or it's being sent back out, suddenly this guy means something. Let's put him on the poster. He really has like a lesser role. What was the waiting party about? It's like, uh, I watched this thing. It's one of those. It's a talkathon. It's like a very talky picture. Uh, I think. I can't, to be honest, I can't remember what the hell it was about, <laughs> except that it was filmed in Shelter Island, the infamous Shelter Island, and it had something to do with various members of a wedding party kvetching and bitching. Um, I love that some of the, I remember some of the uh, not well-known faces, but like the voices were very familiar to me as uh, Jewish older parents, and you know, it's funny, for a while, you know, Robert De Niro's playing Jews. <laughs> Until somebody, you know, I always told my wife it's hard sometimes to tell Italians from Jews. 
And I actually had uh, a fellow that married into the family, this guy Mort, and I love this guy. He was great. He's a funny guy. He gave me some. He actually worked in like a watch shop or some crap, and he gave me a really nice watch that I still have to this day. I used to play all kinds of music. I used to wow people in high school with it because they had like millions. Like, it was crazy. It was, I must have had like a hundred tunes on it, literally, and all kinds of gadgetry and whatever the hell else. But you wouldn't know it unless you talk to him or whatever, and you know maybe you pick up an accent, maybe he picks up a kind of joke, sounds a little borshty, whatever. But otherwise, who the hell knew the difference? <laughs> like there's a, there's a really close kinship in a lot of ways between us, even though I don't know. Sometimes people have issues there. The whole <laughs> if you know Italian stuff, you know the Mazza Christi bullshit. That stuff went on. You know, like yeah, you know, you killed Jesus, and I was you. Who gives a shit? <laughs> Yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't until he started to age into his uh, mid thirties, into his forties. That he really started to look Italian, you know. But back then, he was still uh, a student actor, and he's working. He's working with Brian De Palma. I'm sure they were all good friends, and probably worked for a lot of these people. Probably worked for nothing, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. And, and De Niro was working uh, off Broadway. So was Jill Clayburg was working off Broadway. Yeah, we talked about Clayburgh in uh, that Burt Reynolds movie. What the hell was that? That romantic one where they were all like divorcees getting together? It was starting over maybe? Yeah, starting over maybe, yeah. Without the maybe, starting over. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think all these guys were NYU people too. So when they're not doing off-Broadway or even off-off-Broadway. And here's the thing. To this day... There's not a lot of love given to these early De Palma pictures. This was just first appeared on DVD from Trauma, so you knew the print looked like shit. There was some box set I saw. I think it went out of print with all three of them on there. The, the yeah, yeah, one. it was from Arrow of all people. Mm-hmm. Not that long ago, 2018, which is not that long ago. That went out, went out of print really quickly. It was actually De Niro and De Palma, the early years, which is pretty clever of them to actually find these. And you know, even five years ago, anything Arrow did is above and beyond as far as, uh, you know, finding nice prints. Did you see Hi Mom? Yes, I did, off of YouTube, all, all places. Hi Mom, I didn't, like, physically review it, but I'll tell you, it was a strange little thing. It was like these other films that he did, but uh, different at the same time. It was <laughs> strangely half political, but I'm not really sure he knew what he was trying to say, let's put it that way. Half of it was, and I guess the overall plot, was this one guy who wanted to be a porn director or some shit and he was just going around being a voyeur which again we're going back to De Niro's personal obsessions and he was like peeping in on his neighbors and stuff and trying to film that but then there's this whole bit because you know, this is kind of choppy experimental student film it doesn't always have a linear narrative they had this thing where there was a play that everybody was going to that was an all black review called uh, Be Black Baby yeah. and when they went in there it was like you know white art house patron types you know because they're all in suits you got older guys you know whatever the hell you know you can tell they got money and they painted them up in like blackface or some shit and then they would swap roles like you know the the blacks were all there and they were supposed to be the performers and they'd start yelling at them and abusing them like you know, like you always hear these things that used to happen back before civil rights, you know, where the cops were like, you know, harassing you just because you're a black or, I mean, they didn't literally like put a hose on them or something like that, but it was up to that extent. They were harassing them, giving them a lot of shit. And it's like, yeah, what's wrong with you? You know, get out of here. And they got chased out of the theater. And I think they stole their wallets or some crap like that. And it was just the strangest freaking thing you've ever seen. I'm like, what the hell is this guy trying to say here? And it was in a way, even though it's supposed to be this sort of subversive hippie comedy, I guess, it was depressing. I'm like, what the fuck is it? I mean, this murder all in was just weird, and okay, well, this is odd. This thing's just like, um, okay? <laughs> what? 
<laughs> I mean, you get the idea because back in the sixties, this was kind of a thing, like with hair. You know, with, they had that song in their Colored Spade that I think HUD sang. You know, it was like playing all these stereotypes and like, you know, okay, and then they actually cut it out of some version of the soundtrack to just because I don't want to upset people now with this. But that was the idea. It was poking fun at all stuff, kind of like uh, Norman Lear was doing with Archie Bonker. So they look at his stupidity. It's it's to be laughed at. You know, don't be like this. And I think that's what he was shooting for, but the way it comes off is just like uncomfortable and weird and like, what the fuck? I guess, again, Living Theater is trying to be confrontational, but it didn't really come off the way he intended, I don't think. What was well, your take on this one? Yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to get to that, too, about the Living Theater, because he he was involved in the whole Living Theater experience, mm-hmm. which probably makes sense where he pulled all these actors who were probably all walking the boards all day long. This actually was another picture, Get Rated X by the MPAA, Actually, this time for some um, simulated footage, I think it was that rape scene. Yes, uh, that's what I'm saying. It gets uncomfortable. It's not erotic. It's just like, oh, jeez. No, yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is actually a, se- a sequel to Greetings, which I mentioned earlier, also with Bob De Niro playing John Rubin or Joe Rubin, whichever the character's name was, that Jewish guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a fledgling. He came back from Nam. Now he's in a fledgling uh, adult filmmaker. This is 1970, 71. This is still a very early time to be messing around with, uh, y'all making a movie about comments about Nam, y'all. That didn't, that didn't go over too well until a little later on. Jennifer Salt, who I mentioned earlier, and later again, she'll be popping up in Sisters. It's kind of hot, this. Although, De Niro starts showing, and it, I'm, it's not him, it's Brian De Palma, the director, directing him to do this. But De Niro starts showing like a skeevy persona, which which he 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 would without the Palma he would return to later on over the years, <laughs> where he's like he, he he likes this girl, but he starts filming her fucking other guys as a lawyer because he's he's a cameraman, he's a from you know an amateur director, you know whatever it is. Uh, Alan Garfield. A lot of people remember the name. You'll you recognize the face. Laura Parker from Dark Shadows and other things. Paul Bartell, Garrett Graham again. He probably is working with a uh, that crew that worked on a lot of his pictures. So finally, very strange thing. So Dionysus in 69. Did you manage to catch this? Well, no, but I found out about it. It was like, okay, that's what they put on the De Niro set. What you said about living theater, this was one of these confrontational, I believe, very feminist plays. I think it was about the Furies, wasn't it? Like the Arrhenius or whatever? The Greek myth about these women that were just like... It was a staged uh, version of, of Euripides, the Bacantes. The Bacan- yes, right, and that's the thing. These women, I don't know if they were abused by men when they were alive, or if it's just like, you know, this kind of god spirit, kind of whatever, hell, like the Medusa or whatever, the Gorgons. And that was their whole thing. They were like harpies, you know, they attack men and eat their flesh and rip off their genitals and all that stuff. And this was a play that they had put on, I guess, off-off-Broadway or something. Yes. And yes. he just filmed it. I don't think there was any real art to what he did. It was just a filmed play. This bizarre confrontational feminist sort of play but yeah i mean i didn't see it i just read all about it yeah with 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 some male actors including william finley yeah if if you're unfamiliar with this thing it's a bit jarring i did see this years ago it's a bit jarring because uh is it as bad as what's that one which came in from the sea (laughs) you know that's a professionally made film and that that is that is weird movie man it's disturbing but i actually like it because it is a well-made film despite everything yeah this this is 
a living the, the living theater was started by oh my gosh I can't remember Anthony uh, Martell. No, the American version of the living theater was uh, I used to always notice. I was thinking about stuff like Ubu Roy and Anthony Martell. And... <laughs> no, because I used to work at the NYPL and and people would research the stuff often. Mm -hmm. No, it was big back then. It was big back then. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, even stuff like Old Calcutta was kind of a variant of the living yeah, theater. <laughs> so the Honest in 69 was an updated thing. The performance group, that's what they called themselves at the time. They they would play in this cold garage space, barely heated by, by, by big space heaters. And they had lots of chocolate syrup as, as blood. Think uh, sallow, you know. It was kind of weird. I remember watching this thing. It's a lot of shouting. It's a lot of – it's all nudity. You know, it's all nude movement. I don't know. I think a lot of people would praise this to the high skies because they don't really do stuff like this anymore. Yeah. You know, even the living theater where you have some guy out there thinking shit and reading the paper on the stage. It was like very Warholian. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's just they 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 filmed two or three of these, I believe, in order to edit together. Yeah, I did read something in contrast to non-recorded performances. Actors are not fully naked. That's horse shit. That's. That's probably they did more than one edit, I'm sure. Uh, so it's something if you haven't seen it, I, I say you should check it out just to see bizarre things. I always liked the next film, and I saw this in the theater. Yeah, it took me a while to come around to it, but I actually do like this one a lot, which is Sisters, 1972. Oh, you're talking about oh, the other one beforehand. You get, get to Know, get your, to know rabbit. your Rabbit. No, I did not see that one. Get to Know Your Rabbit, 1972, which Lewis actually saw in the infamous Sleeves Kingdom in the uh, Brighton Beach, known as the Trump Cinema, <laughs> owned by Donald Trump's father. <laughs> Trump Village, yes, it exists. You can go look it up. Was built as medium-cost housing in a poor neighborhood. Now, think about that. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother used to be the housekeeper for Lindsay, Lindsay's secretary. Dave, yeah, John Lindsay. Yeah, Mayor Lindsay. Yeah. Mayor of New York. The guy that gave crabs to Florence Henderson, supposedly. <laughs> so, John Lindsay had a secretary. Uh, name, whatever the fucking name was, and and uh, she lived in Trump Housing, which was these. They were opulent projects, for lack of a better word, back. They were like the the old version of condos. And so uh, my mother would say, "Go do something for a few hours." You know, I was I was 12 years old, and I said, "Well, they got a Trump Cinema here." So I saw Get to Know Your Rabbit, and uh, I loved it because I had nudity, and I was only 12 years old. <laughs> and <laughs> This is when movies were rated M. Mm -hmm. There was no PG back in those days. It was G, G, P, M for mature audiences, and, and X. X. There was mm -hmm. no R yet. M became R. So in this day, they let anybody see anything. You know, fuck. So of all people, now you didn't see us, right? No. Of all people, Tom Smothers of the Smothers Brothers, the, yes. the blonde, balding, pre-balding guy. It's quite good as corporate executive Donald Beeman. Fed up with this is like Brian De Palma's first real movie, guys. He plays uh, Tom Smothers plays Beeman. Fed up with the rat race, quits his job at Impulse because he wants to become a traveling don't laugh magician who tap dances. And so John Aston from the Adams family plays his boss, who tried to convince him not to quit, but then finds pleasure. And following this guy around, and it's like, hey, look at these seedy nightclubs. Girls, 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 hockey talks. Hmm. <laughs> so this movie becomes, starts folding in on itself. And this early Catherine Ross nudity, yes. I'm surprised, uh, Catherine Ross nude. 
That's he not something here. Something to, yeah, yeah, no, mm, yeah. Mm, I'm curious. <laughs> and and yes, but there there was it was recut for GP later on after originally came out M, and then they there was an R version of this. That check this out. So it came out M. It was pretty much intact. They thought John, Tom Smothers is on a famous television show. More people will watch this if more audiences can go. You can't make this thing G. So they cut the GP, and then they watered it down because it does have a lot of blue language. So they then started with the R rating, and then the M became an R. Go figure. So Orson Welles is in this thing. Yes, the Orson Welles as like a master magician and sleaze. <laughs> uh, it features a lot of interesting people in this. M. Emmett Walsh, who years later will show up in other things uh, like Blood, Blood Simple. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Alan Garfield, again, another De Palma uh, veteran who would be uh, famous in the Cry Uncle, amongst other things. Uh, John Aston mentioned it's a strange movie because by the end of the film, smothers Donald Beeman, kind of loses everything, his sense of worth, his girl, and almost just like fucking loses it. it it's a weird movie to put a guy like this in. You know, the guy's like, he's up there with his brother five nights a week on a TV show, and they're doing weird sketch sketch comedy with an edge and then he his first movie it's like what is this <laughs> but then it falls into the whole De Palma thing you're going to work with this guy you're going to do strange shit <laughs> and um, I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone I think everybody should check this out it's a film that needs to be reassessed so now he actually goes from these sort of student films and oddities to actual real film i would say you know i want to say hollywood film but it's not even that because it's still kind of independent with sisters in 1972 the first of several attempts to become quite directly and deliberately the modern hitchcock this early de palma film swipes hitch regular bernard herman for the score and stars cute but crazy Margot Kidder of Black Christmas, 92 in the Shade, and Reincarnation of Peter Proud, plus the Superman films. And, of course, we did 92 in the Shade in our Peter Fonda show. Liza Wilson, whose ridiculously brief resume also puts him in The Incredible Melting Man, is a guy caught on a candid camera by way of Canada's Just for Last show called Peeping Toms. That's actually the name of the show. As the ostensible victim of the stage prank, Kidder pretending to be blind and undressing in an open-air changing room while he stares in disbelief, he wins an upscale dinner date with her. Quebec, I thought you said you were French. Oh yes, I'm French-Canadian. It's not the same, you know. After he fucks her, she goes on in a somewhat overdone but accurate French-Canadian accent about how it's her and her sister's birthday, so he heads off to bring them a cake to celebrate. Unfortunately, De Palma saw her future status as a whacked-out naked woman hiding in the bushes of neighborhood front yards, so when he comes back, he gets stabbed to death in return for his attempt at goodwill. He writes, help me on the window in his own blood before dying, which is spotted by a rear-window-style nosy neighbor and reporter, Jennifer Salt, also of Gargoyles and Murder Alamod, who calls the cops. Meantime, Kidder's ex, the Palmer regular William Finley, helps her hide the body inside her sofa, rope-style, with a Woodstock-like split-screen showing the simultaneous proceedings. The cops don't care to investigate because Wilson is a black man, so Salt hires private investigator Charles Durning of our Pacino show's Dog Day Afternoon and our Bronson show's Breakheart Pass, who breaks in and figures out where the corpse is, though the couch has already been hauled away by that point. There's a freaky twist that involves Salt being hypnotized into believing Kidder is innocent and the death of an increasingly important member of the cast, and it ends somewhat akin to Clouseau's Diabolique. 
is not a great film, but it is very Hitchcockian, and actually Kidder is quite believable as unbalanced. Salt does a credible job, and Finley is sufficiently creepy throughout. It's hardly top-tier De Palma, but it's good, and definitely is a promising start. Plus, I have a thing for ladies with French accents, even the weird Quebecois ones. <laughs> so I was good. How about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's shocking. This is a shocking film. <laughs> you know, no pun intended. It's a shocking film, and yeah, you know, he he goes in the kind of pictures we just talked about, we just described. To boom, minor league Hitchcock, but at the same time, he actually beat Argento's Hitchcock riffs by a cup a uh, few years, right? Yeah, by about three years. And this is pretty weird. And you know, it's funny. Like he really he really tapped into Margot Kidder's inner nuts. Mm-hmm. So uh, he saw something there for he sure. He saw something there for sure. Yeah, but this is followed by an increasing number of odd pictures yes so from that you figure okay wow he really like put up this professional good you know hitchcockian sort of thriller where's he gonna go next <laughs> he goes rears off into fucking fantasy land 1974 phantom of the paradise he brought the blues to britain he brought liverpool to america he brought folk and rock together his band single-handedly gave birth to the nostalgia wave of the 70s so in turns Rod Serling at the start of the 70s musical stinker in the vein of Rocky Horror crossed with Grease by way of Phantom of the Opera, but without the bizarre, lasting cult appeal of any of those three. Dorky De Palma regular William Finley of Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive in the Fun House and Chuck Norris's Silent Rage from our Hooper and Norris shows is overheard playing one of his songs by the ubiquitous Cousin Oliver lookalike and famed short-person piano man Paul Williams, who composed more 70 schmaltz hits than Carole King, Neil Diamond, and the Carpenters combined. Williams is a sort of evil Elton John crossed with Todd Rundgren, a taste-making producer of terrible, bloated 70s classic rock, who steals Finley's music and shuts him out, eventually having him jailed, his teeth extracted, and causing a Joker-style disfiguring accident that leaves him unable to speak, much less sing. Yes, really. Jessica Harper of Suspiria from our Dario Argento show, and Woody Allen's Stardust Memories and Love and Death, is the bushy-eyebrowed Chanteuse who initially won the female lead in Williams' stolen music production. As Finley's Phantom has a thing for her, rather than just sabotaging the production and killing Williams, he accepts a Faustian contract to write the entire thing and ensure that Harper is the lead. Williams, being a complete shit, reneges, putting a super gay cross between Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, and Kiss, with blatant nods to Ziggy or Bowie and Alice Cooper to boot, in the lead instead. Finley offs this glam clown during a stage show, but Williams manages to get in Harper's pants anyway, promising her the lead Finley wanted her for all along, staging a marriage and murder of Harper for no apparent reason other than to tie up all these dumb plot threads. Finley comes to her aid too late, but manages to off Williams. She dives in Finley's arms. Yay, how, uh... Romantic? What the fuck is wrong with all you 70s kids? The more of this sort of shit I get exposed to, like in the first half of a John Belushi show, or I've seen the original MASH from our Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland shows, the more I see how a whole bunch of y'all wind up worshipping in the orange Mussolini down the road. What a stupid piece of shit. Everybody here is compromised. Everything is way over the top. There isn't a single likable soul to be found here. Oh, God. I just I watched this like with my mouth hanging up. I'm like, what the fuck? Apparently, even contemporaneous audiences had agreed, stirring a wide berth of this horrible nihilistic camp fest. It probably works great as a chaser to the nearly as pointless Rocky Horror, but wow. But, you know, somehow some people have this as a cult film or something. I don't get it. <laughs> What's your take? Well, I, I, <laughs> I don't dislike it as much as you do. I, I saw this in the theater, Variety Photo Place, 14th Street. There used to be a porno theater, and they briefly, <laughs> before they returned back to porn, they they showed 
weird movies. <laughs> like Andy Milligan pictures, like <laughs> Pet of the Paradise. This is like 74, 75. Um, so, yeah, it's cool to see this in a real theater because a lot of it takes place in a theatrical. My little, I don't know. <laughs> it's strange, you know. It's is Jessica Harper another one of those freaks? <laughs> because three years later, she's in Suspiria, mm-hmm. where she plays an equally fragile and yet shockingly strange uh, female role. And uh, I don't know what to make her make of her sometimes. Actually, before Suspiria, she actually did inserts. And if we ever do a Richard Dreyfus, I don't know if you've ever seen that film. No, I don't mind Dreyfus. And and it's directed by John Byram, who didn't make many films, and it's about early ex-filmmakers. And apparently, well, you sh- you guys should look into inserts. Um, it's almost killed a lot of careers. That's before <laughs> she even did Suspiria. Before she did, you mentioned Rocky Horror. She did the the Rocky Horror sequel of sorts. Before resurfacing in my favorite year, a movie I love, but we did that for our Richard Benjamin show. Richard Benjamin and Peter Old too, yes. So anyway. so anyway, yeah. So I don't know. It's a strange movie. I don't <laughs> dislike it. It's and you're right. Paul Williams was like um, he was ubiquitous, and he really wrote a lot of hits for a lot of he people. He wrote a lot of stuff, man. He wrote he wrote for Three Dog Night, just a old fashioned love song. Carpenters, rainy days and Mondays. We've only just begun. Can you believe that? Mm-hmm. If it's schmaltzy in its seventies, he probably wrote it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and he wrote Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Yes, he did. <laughs> um, what I find interesting is the, the most memorable song that he ever He didn't wrote. write that one for Tiny Tim, did he? Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. <laughs> no, probably not. That's, that's much, it's much later. It's much later. No, he wrote, he wrote, uh, I'm happy and peppy and bursting with love for the odd couple. That was when Felix, played by Tony Randall, was going to enter a songwriting contest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jack Klugman and Oscar thought he was fucking nuts. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, they couldn't write anything. So, you know, if allegedly Felix wrote that, but apparently it was Paul Williams who wrote that. And Paul Williams showed up in a couple other episodes for you people who like The Odd Couple. Mm-hmm. This is a very strange film. It's, it's not quite bloody. It's not quite gory. It's not quite the... Moody, maybe. Visually, it's it ranges from stunning to, eh, um, I don't know. But Fox released this. So this was like his first, if we're going to say, a bigger budgeted film. Yeah. And uh, Paul Williams was also in the Halloween episode of the Hardy Boys TV series with Sean Cassidy and Parker Stevenson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he was everywhere at that time. You couldn't, back, you couldn't back blink with us, you know. Back to Hitchcock again. So back to Hitchcock for Obsession, correct, 1976. Cliff Robertson, shame from Batman and Uncle Ben and the Raimi Spider-Man. Blowouts John Lithgow in one of his very first roles. And the oddly accented Genevieve Bujold, who we spoke to in our Michael Crichton show for Coma. And our Clint Eastwood show for the wonderfully sleazy tightrope, the stars here. Is lens by Vilmo Zygmunt, who started out under Raiden and Steckler and working on several Arch Hall Jr. movies, like Incredibly Strange Creatures, The Saddest, Nasty Rabbit, and Deadwood 76, not to mention Al Adamson's Five Bloody Graves, Horror of the Blood Monsters, and Psycho a Go-Go, a.k.a. Blood of Ghastly Horror. And uh, I actually did a career-spanning chat with Arch Hall Jr. over to Third Eye Cinema, covering everything from his films with Steckler to Arch's surprisingly filthy book, Absara Jet, before winding up in films like Close Encounters, The Deer Hunter, Blowout, and uh, The Witches of Eastwick. 
<laughs> this one was co-written by Paul Schrader, who gave us favorites like the George C. Scott Hardcore, one of my favorite films, alongside Cruising and uh, Conan. And Anyway, uh, and the Nastasia Kinski Cat People, as well as writing the scripts for our Robert Mitchum shows The Yakuza and American Gigolo. And it was scored by Bernard Harmon again, famed for his work with Hitchcock on Vertigo and North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, Marnie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and The Trouble with Harry. It's one of the Palmas' many blatant attempts to recreate Hitchcock, which he always managed to pull up very successfully, far better than any of the competition. you got to admit that whether you like that or not, as you may have already guessed from the presence of Harmon. Where rich real estate developer Robertson's wife and kid are kidnapped, and some stupid-ass cops advise him to fake the ransom, winding up with the perps and his family dead in a car crash explosion. Now it turns into Vertigo, with his meeting and falling for a lookalike of his dead wife, who also gets kidnapped this time on a wedding night. Once burned, twice shy, he pulls all his money and holdings for the ransom, but it turns out this was all a setup by his partner Lithgow to get him hand over all money and control to himself. He stabs the asshole to death with a pair of desk scissors, just like in Donald Man for murder, then goes after the obvious accomplice, only to have it turn out he was banging and about to marry his own long-lost daughter, who never died but wound up being raised by a stranger in Italy just for this rather long-term sleazy game plan. There's an even weirder, more convoluted final act, close, torn, curtain. Wow, that was a weird element to throw into what was otherwise a very Hitchcockian neo-noir. Robertson's rather stiff, where Hitchcock managed to bring out the dark side of all-American icon Jimmy Stewart in his trio of films with the man, much as he did for his stilted screwball comedy star Cary Grant, stuffy, at least on screen, Ingrid Bergman, and bringing the kinky sex out of the otherwise icy Grace Kelly. But Robertson, yeah, he's stiff. He isn't as bad as, say, Gregory Peck or even Burt Lancaster here, but he's just not filled with the call for emotional instability and fragility. You never really buy that this is a man on his last legs, with predatory types pushing him over the edge to their own nefarious ends. Bujol, who is perfectly hard in coma, and fair if unspectacular in tightrope, does a much better job here, managing to pull off a reasonably credible Italian-esque accent, and wiggling her ass rather nicely walking up some stairs, before Robertson demands she stop that and replicate his late wife's rather stiff gait, showing just how crazy and obsessed the guy was. And Lithgow, looking for all the world like David's soul with a bit more hair than usual, and that goofy porn mustache, is certainly the sleazy businessman, though that southern fried accent, it's a bit on the nose, if not wholly over the top. Zygmunt's cinematography is gorgeous, the sets and location footage are stunning, and the film is a real delight visually, particularly by 70s standards, where bleakness and an underlying despair seem to be the order of the day, cinematically speaking. No, it's not Hitchcock. And the Palma would go on to what I think were much better attempts at this with Blowout and Body Double, but it's damn good. And as Hitchcock swipes go, much less efforts to recreate Vertigo in specific, not bad at all. I didn't mind this one. It's, it's actually good. Well, this is one De Palma movie that gets not spoken about too much in retrospect, partly because... Of Cliff Robertson? <laughs> he's, yeah, he's... No, partly because the, the story... Yes, by the end of the film, we find out he's banging his own daughter, and he ends up with her. Yeah, I was like, what? Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> and and you know what? Columbia. So he's, he's working with Columbia Pictures now, uh, De Palma. Realized it was a good film, but also realized we can't really re-edit this, can we? <laughs> <laughs> so they held on to it for a long time. And... They could have released it to bigger box office, but they released it in like one of the worst periods you could release a film. It was like 
whatever that was. So it's one of the major, at this point, yeah, it's one of the major Hollywood films about incest. A, a, something that will come up a little bit later on, too, with, with this guy. But um, Brian De Palma starts to get into a very, very strange pattern with strange movies that of his accord that he's come up with, yeah. leading to Carrie. Yeah, so 1976, Carrie. De Palma makes another huge misstep, but strangely enough, one that was hugely popular in directing this Stephen King abomination. King, whose adaptations were long the mark of a truly terrible film, though I will say his miniseries, like Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot, which we've discussed in that show, and the original The Stand from our Hooper and Woodby Goldberg shows, could contrarily be quite excellent. Pins this miserable tale of an unfortunate teen, Sissy Spacek, whose only notable film was the CD Prime Cut, whose mother, Piper Laurie, whose only notable film was Dario Argento's Trauma from our Argento show, is a religious right lunatic, a single mother whose issues with sex have led to a severe institutionalizable case of religious mania. Having had zero warning about puberty matters, Spacek has her first rag in the gym showers, which freaks her out to the mockery of the entire class, who proceed to throw tampons at her and such. When she goes home to tell Mama, she gets Bible-beaten, literally, and locked in a closet. Her only defender, a sympathetic gym teacher, actually makes matters worse by punishing the class with detention, and when rich bitch Nancy Allen skips out, she's barred from attending the prom. In manipulative cocktease, Allen finally blows long-suffering dimball boyfriend John Travolta of our William Shatner and Satan in the 70s shows Devil's Reign and our Jamie Lee Curtis shows Perfect, still in full Benny Barbarino mode, into conspiring to get back at Spacek for this. I, I'd, lo- I'd love to do a show on Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> it would be amusing, that's for sure. He's all over the place with his career. Through a combination of their machinations and some well-intentioned sympathy from a pair of classmates, the socially ostracized Spacek gets invited to prom and made homecoming queen only to have her big moment ruined by a shitty prank that traumatizes her and knocks out the boy that she came with. Suddenly she has weird psychic powers and winds up killing most of her classmates and teacher chaperones, heads home to MAGA Mama only to be stabbed to death by her, and appropriately crucifies the Republican Nazi psycho with kitchen knives. Everybody dies, there's one of those stupid slasher film scare endings, fade to black. Let's not mince words here. I despise this film. I hated it as a child when it came out, and my opinion has only darkened with attempts to reevaluate it over the years. Overrated? This is one of the biggest arguments to an ever more validated assessment that everybody out there must be living on a fucking different planet. One that's seriously lame, has zero aesthetics, or even a modicum of taste, and couldn't suss out quality from dog shit if you pulled the plug in their Nashville and rap feeds, into reality TV, and shut down both the Hallmark and Lifetime channels all at once. I have no idea why this one always comes up on horror lists or continues to gain respect and praise. It's an unpleasant story with irredeemable and wholly unlikable characters and paints the ugliest picture of teenage life, particularly but not exclusively in Red State America, ever lends. There's nothing scary about it. There's no sense of catharsis through revenge. It's like a fantasy version of the school shootings that became a thing ever since MTV wouldn't stop airing the fucking Pearl Jam Jeremy video nonstop back in the early to mid-90s. My take? Avoid this one like the fucking plague. It quite frankly has zero redeeming qualities. Obviously you're going to think differently, so what's your take? (laughs) I'm going to burn your notebook. It's full of satanic writings. (laughs) It's the truth. I speak the truth, brother. It probably is. (laughs) No, I, it's not a likable film. No. It's not meant to be a likable film. Is it a horror film? It's debatable. Is it a terror film? It's debatable. It's The real evil here is peer pressure. Religious mania? 
No, the 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 way she's treated. Oh yeah, but the, the teenagers her... are horrible. The mother is horrible. Everybody. Well, I'm getting to that. And the you know the 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 mother is the the Christian right, the whole MAGA thing, and how guilty she was for having sissy mm-hmm. as a child. You know, she felt guilt in giving birth, and you know, because there's a whole story to reveal there about mm-hmm. that. I don't want to get into. And she had guilt over having sex. Period. But I have to say, young sissy Spanish. Space chick. I used to call her space chick for you. <laughs> young, young sissy. She, she's, she's pretty damn terrific in the part. And Piper Laurie, if she makes you hate her so much, then she's doing a good job. Yeah, but she made you hate her in trauma, and it wasn't as bad. This was like, oh my god. Well, no, you know what it is? There's no catharsis in this film because you get no a lot catharsis. of like nerd revenge things. Where there is no and... catharsis. It yeah. ends on a downbeat note, like a lot of Stephen King fucking novels. Yeah, well, that's and... why I don't like them. <laughs> that's one reason. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's this got a lot, of, a lot of. Yeah, sorry. This has a cast of a lot of young, hungry kids. You know, like PJ Souls who yep. would be in Rock and Roll High School, and Nancy Allen. We'll get to her later. And William Cat, uh, yep. what was that? Greatest American, Greatest American hero. hero. Yep. Yeah. And and they did some shitty like Vietnam movies for like in the Philippines, like White Ghost. <laughs> yeah, he's aged very badly. I thought he was younger than that, but he guessed not. But then again, this is the seventies. Apparently, the only one who's looking amazing is John Travolta, who probably sucks Satan's dick. But <laughs> you, Satan said you're gonna lose your hair, but you're still gonna look great at seventy. Okay. John. <laughs> The guy looks amazing now. Have you seen him? Yes, I have. I, I, He's still got those pudgy cheeks, though, but yeah. But, you know, I see his, you know, I'm, I follow him on Instagram like, dude, you look fucking bright. <laughs> him, him and him and his buddy, you know, like. Um, Who, Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise. Yeah, Tom Cruise is amazing. I can't figure that guy out. I love He's Tom Cruise. <laughs> I love Tom. No, not that way. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> well, we talked about doing a Tom Cruise show at some point. So because you know what, when when he was starting out and he was young, he was learning, and and then they for some reason he he did some stuff when he was young, like risky business and uh, uh, what was that thing with Cocktail? Nicholson? A few good men or whatever the hell. The the picture, the courtroom drama with um, Jack yeah. Nicholson. Wasn't that a few good men? That's yeah, a few good men. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, this guy, this guy can do stuff, you know. And then you know he bounces around, and then he starts. Blowing me away, like the color of money. And then he's like the biggest star in the world now. <laughs> well, probably thanks to the Palma, because he was in Mission Impossible, and he still is. <laughs> and he still is, like how many years later. And and I think we'll get to that, because I actually think I watched that again for this silly show. And yeah. <laughs> Me too. And I like it, but yeah, we'll get to that, because I have something to say about that picture. Yeah, I think the more later ones were better, let's put it that way. But it's yeah. still it's good. It's a good start. Now, so, let's get back to the Palmer being weird, like the Fury. Oh, God, 1978, the Fury. Boring, strangely boring, and confused attempt to replicate the undeserved success of Carrie, but it's more akin to our Donald Pleasant show's Escape to Witch Mountain, crossed with David Cronenberg's Scanners, and we're going to be doing a show on Cronenberg, and of course we did a show on Pleasant's. Kirk Douglas of Saturn 3 and our Tony Curtis show Spartacus and the Vikings. Amy Irving of uh, Yentl is about the best I can offer outside the Palma. Andrew Stevens of our Bronson shows 10 to Midnight and about a million cheesy Shannon Tweed HBO Skinamax late night softcore films like the Night Eyes series. Oh, and Hellraiser. He was in the first one. Was he now? I didn't even remember that. Uh, Charles Durning of our Al Pacino shows Dog Day Afternoon, our Bronson shows Breakheart Pass, and Nico Mastarakis is the Greek tycoon from my interview with Nico over at Third Eye Cinema. John Cassavetes of our Bronson shows The Dirty Dozen and our Roman Polanski shows Rosemary's Baby. 
Carrie Snodgrass of our Richard Benjamin Show's Diary of a Mad Housewife, and Fiona Lewis of Fearless Vampire Killers, the Dan Curtis Dracula and Drum from our Roman Polanski, Dan Curtis, and Blaxploitation shows all appear, but the film is kind of awful. Uh, strangely so. Oh, you forgot to mention Dennis Rance, who... Yes, yes, you're correct. I, I love that guy, and he, he appears in another De Palma picture coming up where he almost steals the picture. Yeah, the Franz is kind of a regular for De Palma, if you want to look at it that way. Kirk is the father of psychic power sporting Stevens, who gets kidnapped by Cassavetes and thrown into a scanner-style program as a potential military weapon. Amy Irving is an unrelated teen who also manifests psychic powers and experiences the same trauma that Stevens is going through there. Irving, Douglas, Stevens, and Cassavetes eventually all face off, and deaths ensue. Honestly, Cronenberg did this so much better. Even Disney did it better for a cheesy live-action kids movie a few years earlier. The Palm was still a full decade away from jumping the shark and some terrible unerotic thrillers and a lot of yawn-inducing work for horror jobs, but he certainly delivered his share of stinkers even in his heyday. Carrie and Phantom of the Paradise spring immediately to mind, as well as this one, The Fury. And honestly, if you look at the reputation on it, somehow... Even though people didn't like Family of the Paradise, it kind of has this reputation as a cult film. Carrie, people love for whatever reason. Nobody ever really says, oh yeah, The Fury, that was a great film. It was kind of disliked and ignored from the minute one, and it still is. You, you've got a lot of combating uh, acting styles here, too. Yes. You, know, you have, you have uh, classic, old-school Hollywood, and still looking quite good and quite athletic. Kirk Douglas, who to get, you know, it must be written a, a clause in his contract for a long time, like, you could take your shirt off. <laughs> him, and, him and Bert, they're yep. always in movies up until the 80s where, like, they could take their shirt off. You know, and they had that. And Charlton Heston, because they had that old school Hollywood, you know, it wasn't like a bodybuilding thing, but they still yeah. look good. Yul Brenner's another one. Yul Brenner. And so, so what, that's actually what I wasn't, I wasn't going for that, but what <laughs> I wanted to say was that, so you had a, uh, an old school Hollywood guy like Kirk Douglas around for a long time, one of the great fucking movies of all time, Spartacus, he's the star of that, Pads of Glory, many, many pictures. Who's with a not a not a not a young actor, but a, a different kind of actor, Cassavetes. And almost anything Cassavetes does is kind of odd, because Cassavetes, I don't know if he's actor studio or just riffs. Like, show me the script, okay? You know, like, and he's gonna come up with his character. You know, a lot of John Cassavetes movies that he did not direct, I often got the feeling that it was like, show me the script, okay? <laughs> and he's going to, like, decide right there and then how he's going to do a line. And so this is, you know what it's, a lot of people don't see it as and what it is. It's it's, it's a, a sort of Cronenbergian spy film not done by Cronenberg. You know, it's, yeah, it's about, it's about the kind of stuff that they were alleging to have done on people back in the day. You know, the psychic experiments on soldiers. And that's where part of the story actually ha is, is going on. You know, how Kirk Douglas's son has actually has this ability. One of the problems with the picture is the ending. You know, it's like, you guys couldn't come up with anything positive? <laughs> I mean, you, you, I get it. Not every film has to be positive. But of course not. I, this is just one of those pictures, like, you, you couldn't love it. Because there, there was a lot of things going on here that just, like, batted itself out. I kind of got the feeling that whenever Cassavetes and Douglas were on screen together, though probably very interesting in real life, they just were butting heads. Like, one guy's thinking, like, what are you doing? Yeah. 
And Fiona Lewis uh, is really playing an arch villain, villainess, and she's she's doing that quite well in this. So I don't hate it. I just thought I never trap. Yeah, yeah, and I I never liked the ending. I was like, come on, you know. And the problem is, it's very much akin to Scanners. It's almost like as if one of them was a copy of the other. But Scanners is engaging. It's fun. It's you know, it's a freak out thing if you haven't seen it before. You know, there's weird special effects, weird ideas. It makes you think. The Fury was just kind of like I don't know. It's almost like the TV movie version, but not even that good. <laughs> well, like I said, even Escape to Witch Mountain, which we did for a Donald Pleasant show, it's sure. a kids movie. And it was more engaging than this. I mean, there's more narrative. There's more, you know, things happening to keep you interested. And like, oh, yeah, okay, you go along with this. The Fury is just like. Well, you know what's missing from this? Uh, and it's hinted at only briefly. It's like there's with all this, the psychic abilities of the of the teenagers. Well, they're not teenagers. They, they're playing teenagers, but they look older than teenagers. Yeah, definitely older than teenagers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That it, it's hinted out at this this erotic stuff going on more than just baby love, and that's something that could have been explored. But then again, this is you know 1978, so they didn't. Followed by another picture with Kirk Douglas, which what home movies? I didn't see that one. Yeah, I I don't know if it was a goof or whatever. <laughs> it was it was made very cheap money. Has a Pino Donaggio score. You know Pino. Uh, is uh, famous Italian scorers did a lot of movies over there. Lush and romantic scores. Yeah, and and he right, and he was very good also at aping Bernard Herrmann. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> so De Palma, I almost said I almost said scores. De Palma would go back and forth to doing teaching at Sarah Lawrence College. I'm surprised you never heard of that. Pretty popular. And they would do things like he would like tell his students like, you know, make a movie. You know, and, you know, submitted at the end of the blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll grade you. Mm -hmm. So he had the idea. I don't know. Maybe he thought that these kids couldn't do jack shit. So he had the idea, like, I'll direct it. You guys all write it. So he had had a whole bunch of people contribute. And he probably called up friends. And he said, uh, I guess he worked well with Kirk Douglas to get him to do this. Because they said, oh, we'll make an erotic film directed by students. And, you know, we don't know a lot about Kirk Douglas. A lot of it's hearsay, but apparently he was Kirk Douglas. So <laughs> apparently very well endowed Kirk Douglas. So you know, I'm sure he, he he used that to his advantage. Gives a new meaning to Ace in the Hole, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Insider joke. There you go. <laughs> so he plays film director, the maestro. Vincent Gardenia from Death Wish is back. Nancy Allen is back. Keith Gordon, who will shine later on in uh, Dress to Kill, something else. And Teresa Saldana is in this. And it's it's a mess. It's it's a very cheap-looking, cheaply-made film. It barely came out for United Artists who didn't know what the hell to do with it because it looks like whole movies and greetings like De Palma's early movies and why after you make a couple of major pictures would you do something like this I guess he thought or maybe the fury wasn't received so well I'm, I'm you know on my off days and working with the school I'll call up Kirk you know <laughs> and Kirk's like how young are they <laughs> but 1980 he would make one of his best and pictures. isn't Teresa Saldana the mother of Zoe who's now like doing things like Gamora from the Guardians of the Galaxy and all that I don't know, is she? I, there was a lot of stuff going on. I remember a guy tried to rape her. Oh, jeez. In um, real life, or are you talking about the... No, real life. Jeez. 
Yes, he was stuck. Yeah. 1982. Um, I know we discussed or we were watching a movie not too long ago, maybe over the summer. The story in it, it was actually like a really horrible, tragic story back in the 70s where she had done a couple of movies and she, she came off a TV show like maybe Phyllis or something, one of those Mary Tyler Moore knockoffs. And she did one or two movies, one of which we discussed. And after that, uh, my wife was asking, oh, yeah, whatever happened to this person? I'm like, you really don't want to know because some sicko went and stalked her and killed her. You know, they raped her and killed her, I guess. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the news report now. It's pretty shocking. Um, and also when we talk about the hand, remember the, the Oliver Stone thing and the um, Michael Caine show, that girl there too. She didn't get killed. But. She was stalked by uh, a fan with a five-and-a-half-inch hunting knife puncturing her lung. Jeez. He, he stabbed her so viciously the blade bent. Although watched by children and onlookers, only a delivery man stopped when he heard their cries, hospitalized with 10 stab wounds, spent four months in the hospital. Um, she played herself in Victims for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. Her attacker spent 14 years in prison. I, I don't know why you don't get life for this. Yeah, exactly. uh, made threats against her while in prison, extradited to the UK for a 1966 robbery. So it shows you people, the sickos aren't just out now. They're uh, out back then, too, just not in as big numbers, I guess. <laughs> is she is she Teresa's mom? I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Uh, No, Tiana Saldana. Oh, no. Zoe, okay. All right, so anyway. Not Zoe. <laughs> so uh, 1980, Dressed to Kill. De Palma crosses Psycho with the New York Ripper or Crime of Passion from our Lucio Fulci, Ken Russell, and Tony Perkins shows. Not quite as sleazy as Fulci or Russell's odes to 70s and New York and its seedy underbelly. This one nonetheless really wallows in the mire and surprisingly even won some awards for it. She won some Saturns and New York Film Critic Awards and some Golden Globe nominations. You mean they used to have some actual taste back then? We covered this one on our Michael Caine show. Regulars Nancy Allen and Dennis Franz are joined by Rat Pack Hanger-On and noted leg woman Angie Dickinson of Police Woman fame and the aforementioned Kane, who we devoted a whole show to, as ostensible leads. Suffice to say, the connection to Psycho is not merely surface level as our heroine Dickinson tries to come on to her shrink, Kane, fucks a rando that she meets at MoMA, and <laughs> discovers he's an STD factory after the fact. Even more unfortunately for her, she also forgets her wedding ring in his place, leaving her running into his tranny killer. The whole thing is seen by Colgo Allen, who just turned a trick in the same apartment building, and the rest of the film is her trying to report the killer to the cops while avoiding becoming the next victim. There are a few very psycho-esque twists and turns, roll credits. While Sisters blow out and to a lesser extent obsession all updated Hitchcock films to a far more sexually open and experimental era, this one is the first De Palma film to outright wallow in kinky sex, obsession, and sexual neuroses in a blatant Jalo-esque manner. As much a super sleazy erotic thriller as it is a slasher or Hitchcock homage, this has always been one of my all-time favorite De Palma films, fitting in right there with the aforementioned Fulci and Russell pluses, as some of the most highly charged seedy New York Times Square in the early 80s classics ever lensed, as much as less erotic but still super scummy stuff like Lustig's Maniac and Vigilante, Scavellini's Nightmare, Glickenhouse's The Exterminator, and the aforementioned Hardcore and Cruising. Dickinson's body double in the opening shower sex scene is pretty hot, though it's pretty jarring seeing that body intercut with Dickinson's honestly Nigeriatric face, and what's with her ridiculous fake orgasm noises? But it is one hell of a movie. And speaking of its Jalo-esque connections, it was actually released in Italy as Pulsions, and they have a very Jalo-esque poster that they sold it under. So it's it's a good one. If you dig Jalos, if you dig De Palma, if you dig Hitchcock and you want some sleeves in there, this is the one. Well, to... Uh, <laughs> 
to anyone who has not seen this, uh, I, I don't think we're going to give it away, but it's really quite good. It's it's one of the best American-made pictures. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> one, of the, one of the best American-made Jalos. pictures of its type. Jalos. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a slasher film. It's not. Very well made. It's like, and this guy, Brian De Palmas, he hit gold quite a few times. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Michael King. Love that guy. He's brilliant in this. And you don't know until a certain point how important he is to the uh, unfolding of the story. We'll put it that way. Angie Dickinson? Yeah, okay, she's body doubled in the shower, but man, she was so hot. That scene in the in the museum? Wow. Nancy Allen, quite nice. Keith Gordon. I love Dennis Francis, the Tucker Marino, because <laughs> He worked with the Palmer before, but Dennis Franz really ad adopted this very New Yorkian thing, and he would like he would bring his voice down, and you know, whenever he's uh, interrogating Nancy Allen, you know, because she's a prostitute, and Keith Gordon's mom, played by Angie Dickinson, was was murdered in a sex murder thing, and and he's like, yeah, well, y'all don't leave town, that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> it's, I, it, it, it's such a great film, and the it's funny. I wonder if. He's never said this, but I wonder if, like, if De Palma had watched not only Suspiria, but the film before it, because the film is lensed in lots of colorful lighting and is very much akin to Deep Red, because the whole thing is, see, the thing is with Dress to Kill, as the, the son and the uh, woman of the night, played by Nancy Allen, decide to try to investigate this rather haphazardly and much to their detriment, and they do quite a good job. Better than the cops. <laughs> Better than the cops, but they're putting themselves at danger. There are like little triggers that slowly reveal the identity of who may be responsible for this. I tell you, no matter how many times you go watch this, you're like, yeah, I forgot about yeah. that. It, it actually kind of surprises you if you have enough years in between it every time. So it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot it was him. <laughs> yeah, and, and Michael Caine's absolutely fucking fantastic in this mm -hmm. movie. One of many reasons that we did a show on him. Next up, he does another battle right out of the park with Blowout, 1981. Mm. De Palma takes John Travolta, who, as far as I'm concerned, is only good movies, but this one and our Jamie Lee Curtis show is perfect. And regulars Nancy Allen, also of 1941 from our John Belushi show, John Lithgow, and sleazy Dennis Franz, also of our Tony Perkins show Psycho 2, and throws him into this cross between political thriller, Hitchcock, and the Italian Jalo, particularly the more intricate and bloodless variety like The Fifth Chord, Black Belly of the Tarantula, or the Police Tessie Jalo hybrid, a citizen of suspicion. Travolta is a sound man for low budget slashers, doing some foley work who accidentally captures a JFK style political assassination crossed with Ted Kennedy at Chappaquiddick. Allen is the piece on the side bimbo who the late presidential hopeful was screwing that fateful night, who gets saved from the engineer drowning by Travolta. And Franz is a blustery rando who seemingly also lucked into filming that incident the same night, whose film confirms Travolta's suspicions. Things get more complicated when it turns out that everyone in the cast save Travolta was in on a blackmail plot that suddenly morphed into not only a hit on the guy, but a serial killing cover-up, all in the interest of advancing the late political's rival in the Carters of Power. There's a nasty Jalo-esque ending where the bad guys ultimately win despite all efforts and evidence to the contrary to condemn them. Shades of the past six years, huh? And Travolta finally delivers his sleazy producer the perfect scream he was supposed to deliver at the start of the film. That's a hint there. Roll credits. If anyone has a single doubt that the Palma was very deliberately trying to make an American Jalo, just check out that extreme 
extremely goblin-esque prog rock score by Pino Danaggio. They were accused around the midpoint of the film that sound like Simonetti and company crossed with Guido and Maurizio DeAngelis. It's that dead on. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Tagging a lot of gaslighting, a puzzle whose pieces never quite fit together, plenty of shots of an unseen black glove killer in the first third of the film, the inability to trust anyone in the film, weird camera angles and points of view that couldn't possibly come from any characters in the film, and a failed ostensible hero, and a whole lot of night set visual flair. It gets pretty damn obvious. He'd do sleazier and more entertaining work shortly thereafter, but this remains one of his best, and it's been a favorite since I first viewed it on HBO soon after its release. Oh, I, I uh, Criterion was doing a 4K uh, super sale, like for 20 bucks, like three, four years ago, and like, Okay. <laughs> and they also did Sorcerer, too, the freaking. I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I was like, I had seen Blowout. It used to be perennial on HBO. And I was like, yep. who else can watch this all the time? It's pretty downbeat. <laughs> and I watched that, and I said, oh, man, John Travolta is fucking amazing sometimes. Yeah. You know, and he could really more, be good. He could really be good, more than just this imperfect. Don't be silly. <laughs> he could be silly sometimes. And. Boy, you know, Dress to Kill had the opportunity and was leaning toward a really fucked up ending. You know that. Yep. And, well, Blowout has the fucked up ending yes. that Dress to Kill did not have. <laughs> it's a shocking film. It's, 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 yes, you're right about a lot of things. Because I just mentioned leading up to this, when I was talking about Dress to Kill, about, you know, did De Palma see a lot of these Jalo things? Because this is even more so. Mm-hmm. Dress to Kill is more surface jello. This is more of the deeper, Deep, more yeah. political outsized, less bloody jello. Yeah, and you know, Nancy Allen, very much a, you know, it's funny. She's very much, I interviewed Nancy, actually. It's on YouTube, folks. I'll, maybe I'll find it, put it back on my Facebook page. Very nice lady, willing to talk about anything. I actually scored that one by asking the guy, like, you think Siobhan talked to me? Sure, why not? I was like, oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> put some shit together. And, you know, uh, and, and don't forget, she she had a run that went all the way up to RoboCop. And that's a shocking fucking picture, too. Um, so poor, poor woman, you know, she was traumatized by appearing in all these harsh movies. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, you know, seriously, though, Blowout is one amazing American film. And I could see why. I could see why it, it continually pops up on greatest list mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a great american film the irony is that he also i think he shot on location like 1979 80 or would have been 79 fourth of july and some of that's tagged into here and it's hard to talk about this film without giving away a lot of stuff like the last picture and these are two movies i think we're gonna try to keep to our thing here and and not give away too much amazing yeah. performances all around and it's a shocking picture and a shocking quota yeah and i will say this it's a better jfk assassination conspiracy theory sort of a thing again cross with ted kennedy and chappaquiddick than stuff like oliver stone's jfk you know things are much more celebrated maybe people don't recognize what's going on here but it's pretty obvious and very well done so 1983 scarface <laughs> And now we come to the film that launched a billion gangster rap careers, hundreds of shitty New Jack drug lord crime pictures, and thousands of terrible impressions of Pacino's ridiculous accent. 
In May 1980, Fidel Castro opened the harbor at Mario, Cuba, with the apparent intention of letting some of his people join their relatives in the U.S. It soon became evident that Castro was forcing the boats to carry not only relatives, but the dregs of his jails. Of the 125,000 refugees that landed in Florida, 25,000 had criminal records. And on this decidedly Trumpian statement, they're not sending their best, they're bringing drugs, so opens this rather depressing remake of the pre-code Jimmy Cagney gangster flick, updated to make the estimable Al Pacino, who we'd done an entire show on, into a badly accented Central American with a smoking hot Michelle Pfeiffer at the top of her game, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as the sister he holds a rather blatantly incestuous flame for, just like Cagney in the original. What about homosexuality, Tony? You like men, huh? You like to dress up like a woman? Boy, customs and immigration has really changed their entry questionnaire since the early 80s, huh? You a communist? They tell you all the time what to do, what to think, what to feel. You want to be like a sheep? You want to work eight, ten fucking hours? You own nothing? You got nothing? You want a chivato on every corner watching everything you do, everything you say? What, do you want me to stay there and do nothing? Robert Loggia of the Pink Panther movies and Psycho 2 is the mobster who picks up the green recruit and mentors their eventual rise to surpass him. I didn't know you were so sensitive about your diplomatic status. What's your problem, lady? You're good-looking, got a beautiful face, a beautiful body, all these guys in love with you, only you got a look in your eye like you haven't been fucked in a year. Pfeiffer is Loggia's wife, who Pacino comes on to and eventually convinces to be his girl, only leave him when she can't give him a kid and turns into a serious cokehead. Let's get this straight right now. I never fucked anybody over who didn't have it coming, you got that? All I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I don't break them for no one. You want to go on with me? Say it. You don't, then you make a move. F. Marie Abraham of Amadeus is the grouchy Sid Haig-like sideman who turns out to be a narc and gets hung from a helicopter, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio of no notable credits otherwise is Pacini's nappy Frode sister. Seriously, looks like she stuck her finger in an electric socket here. Oh my god, she was amazing in, in, in The Abyss. Uh, who, <laughs> it's James Cameron, I don't want to talk about him. Uh, oh, who oh, plays oh. bodyguard too because he secretly wants to fuck her himself. There's a few weird scenes in this, like where she's loaded and enjoying some disco boy feeling her up, and when they head off to the men's room so she can play chicken head for some blow, he busts in and beats the crap out of the guy, getting way too close and personal, and she calls him on what's really going down. Happens again later when he offs another guy who it turns out she just married in some Vegas wedding. In the end, his sister-slash-love interest guns him down, but not before he does a Belushi Saturday Night Live cast-worthy mountain of blow and guns down a room full of hitmen. Despite how stupid and sordid this all sounds, it's actually a much better mob film than the overpriced likes of Scorsese, Coppola, and Tarantino was ever able to deliver. Unlike any of their stuff, this one's actually watchable, and while hardly Italian and approaching feel, it's the closest American takes on the sordid world of organized crime ever came to that. I can't say it's a great film because I can't stand this kind of crap, and that's a very hard and fast role for me, but it's definitely the best of any American mob films, and it's got both a good, very invested cast and what was at the time still a very solid filmmaker, though, as we'll see, he'll start to lose it not long thereafter. So what's your take? I'm sure you love this one. So, <laughs> well, I disagree with that last statement. I think uh, Martin Scorsese has made some of the best American cry films. Shut up. So... Um, Yet, did you know that De Niro, that De Palma wanted De Niro for the lead, but he turned him down? And I think it's interesting because, I mean, both these guys would have had a hard time with this. And Al decided to go with this. And what I find interesting is that by this time period, Al Pacino's already done Cruising. Dog Day Afternoon. He's already done Dog Day Afternoon, correct? Yep. And he's already done Godfather Part Two, and well, fuck, a lot of pictures. So he's not young. And he has to play not only Latin, I mean, he's Italian, but he has to play a Latino, but he has to play younger, which is really interesting. And 
it's a weird kind of Frankenstein performance. It's almost like an amazing performance. It's almost like performance art. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It's almost like maybe Brian De Palma was doing with Al Pacino what he used to do back in the day was work with performance art, you know, like the living theater. And one thing they got wrong in this, I have to say, is that, uh, you know, Latinos, they're all like scrumptious looking babes, you know, like mm-hmm. they're the full bodied yes. girls. And, and all, 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 you know, from Mary to. Well, they all got flat asses. <laughs> they're all skinny girls. In the... They're what they call flaccus. Even when they go to the <laughs> bars, they're all skinny girls dancing. You know, yeah. it's like, hello. <laughs> Where's that booty? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although the violence in this is like out of fucking control. I don't know how they got this thing released. And I can't imagine they were really doing blow because they would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> they did that much. But his performance yeah. is so over the top, and yet somehow he makes it work, which is really interesting. Yeah, it makes it work. His performance is so over the top, it makes it work. And I, I wonder sometimes, like, were they really doing this bunch of drugs? I don't know. <laughs> um, Stephen Bauer had so much promise, that guy. And, you know, I, I don't know what happened that he blew it, you know, in, in later films. But well, it's a good, good supporting cast. You know, uh, I love how we got a lot of Jews and Italians in this picture about Spanish guys. I <laughs> uh, remember Abraham, you know, mm-hmm. as Omar. <laughs> right, because he's supposed to be Arabic, I guess. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> right. And Robert Loggia is Frank Lopez. You know, like, yeah, okay. But, uh, you know... You can't hate this movie, but if you've never seen it and you only read about it, it's it's something to be seen. It's vicious. It's wild. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's all over the map, but it works. It, it works, and it's it's if you I, I, I'm going to do a public service to you though. If you're very sensitive to violence, <laughs> you might want to pass this one up. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal. You know, it's one of I don't think you've ever heard me say this, but there's some nasty shit in this movie. So. Um, uh, if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, it's just like uh, watch the YouTube version, <laughs> which is like 14 minutes long, and then the credits roll because this three-hour movie is something else. But if you want to see what a Colombian necktie looks like, <laughs> if you want to see some funny shit, like Al, like just blows mine with like mountains of blow. Oh, literally, it's like Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live, or like Belushi in real life. <laughs> Oh, like Belushi in real life, yeah. Remember the one where he's like, I like it when he's that mountain of blow? There you go. <laughs> um, but, but, but another thing was, um, I wanted to say was, it's an amazing performance that Al Pacino does. You know, a lot of people gave him shit like, you're not Spanish, you're not Latino. It's an amazing performance. Shows how good an actor he was. Oh, he's great. If he didn't have that ridiculous accent. I mean... <laughs> Next, we have Next. Uh, Brian Night- De Palma in his porno phase almost. Yes, Body Double, 1984. Goofy Bill Mayer looked like Craig Wasson of our George Siegel show's Roller Coaster, our Klaus Kinski show's Schizoid, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is a schlub actor. Period. 
<laughs> but in this case, I'm referring to the film's plot, where he even botches that no-budget new-wave vampire flick and gets psychologically abused in method acting class. The surprisingly still stunning Barbara Crampton of Stuart Gordon's From Beyond, Reanimator, and her Full Moon Pictures shows Castle Freak and Trances 2, cameos in the all together as Watson's girlfriend, who he comes home early to find riding some rando to weird new wave music. How the hell you fucked up new wave music? I don't know. Uh, he winds up house-sitting for a stranger that he met in that acting class disaster, who introduces him to the wide world of being a peeping Tom. Deborah Shelton of Blood Tide is the drop-dead gorgeous neighbor who does silly half-clothed strip bar routines for the neighbors every night at the same time, despite apparently not having a good enough voice and winding up redubbed throughout the film. This is true. Wasson is bored and obsessed enough to stalk her around town all day, and she actually makes out with him for this. Eventually, he sees yet another guy attacking her in her apartment and runs over to help, but fails, and she's murdered before his eyes. Already fairly compromised, his attempt to report this to the cops is botched further when he's found passed out on the floor with her panties in his pocket, leaving him as prime suspect. Then he watches a porno and sees the lowest heirs, but with an ass and without a stinky snatch, according to Jerry Butler in the hilarious tell-all book Raw Talent, if you haven't read that. Look like Melanie Griffith of our Richard Benjamin show's Milk Money, doing the same dance that Shelton did nightly, so he tails her through the world of L.A. porn and gets involved with her. There are some things I like to get out of the way right up front because there's no misunderstandings later on. I do not do animal acts. I do not do S&M. No water sports either. I will not shave my pussy. No fist fucking. And absolutely no coming in my face. And on that rather Annette Havens-like porn diva opener, the Cupid doll squeaky voice Griffith and her fantastic ass takes over the film, as she and Watson figure out the whole mystery, and it's quite a bit darker and more convoluted than the film that it most obviously pays homage to, Rear Window. Late 80s screen queen Brinky Stevens cameos, and even Frankie Goes to Hollywood with the late Holly Johnson involves Watson in the de facto fourth version of their continually censored relax video, right down to his nerd getting fucked in the club John, show up at one memorable point, but it's the closest thing visually you'll ever encounter to the lovable Deglo chintz of 80s porn. When not in the stunning mountainside house, which apparently was a, a model house of note that people still talk about, it really looks like a porno from the glory days of the Vivid Vixen and the reign of hotties like Lords, Boyer, Ginger, and Amber Lynn, which De Palma was very clearly watching. Pino Dinaggi returns with a likable if odd score, otherwise filmed with quirky new wave, and the whole thing is pretty great, a less dark but equally sleazy and very 80s variant of what De Palma was doing with Dress to Kill. Always love this one, and while Blowout and Dress to Kill may be better films with stronger casts, this one is far more watchable and fun while keeping the Hitchcockian business and sleaze fully front and center. You know, <laughs> it's that funny. I always thought that was a Frank Lloyd Wright house, but it's not. It's not, it's yeah. It's a chemosphere, whatever the fuck that is. Although that, I think that was destroyed in one of the later Lethal Weapon films, I think. Anyway, um, yo, uh, huh. Being the cat. <laughs> De, pa De Palma always wanted to make, as I said on the outset, he was very interested in the possibility of making a, uh, with good acting and a good story, a an adult film crossover. It's been done by Chuck Vincent in Love, Roommates for some of Chuck Vincent's pictures, and um, very well received. There were harder versions, and there were like R versions, and there were like middle middle versions. And I think the Paul was fascinated with that. I think I also just took a look while you were speaking of a uh, interview that he had done after the release of Dress to Kill. What he got so turned on by the Angie Dickinson thing, he was thinking of maybe I could make a whole movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we know it's a sick bastard. So the thing is, 
Linda Shaw, Alexandra Day, Carolot, Annette Haven all appear in this uncredited. As I mentioned earlier, Annette Haven was supposed to have a bigger part, and allegedly, she's still around, I can ask her, actually. We're friends, so it's not just like one of those following things. So were you actually going to get the uh, Melanie Griffith part? Because <laughs> legend goes, he wanted her for that, and then the studio balked, because everybody knows Annette Haven, you know? Annette Haven was an actress who could really act, you know, besides the other stuff. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, I, I'm seeing this now. I don't know how true this is, but Melanie Griffith's then boyfriend at the time of Buddy Double was uh, Stephen Bauer, who was in Scarface. And she had him cameo as a male porn actor for her scenes. <laughs> so maybe she was afraid to Palmer was going to, like, sneak in like somebody else, you know. <laughs> Oh, no, no, my husband will play this part. Because <laughs> she probably knew Bauer wouldn't penetrate her. Uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so, seriously, what do I think of this movie? I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> this led to a whole shitload of fucking things on VHS, DVD, uh, brief theatrical, strip to kill, all kinds of stuff about women strippers. Yep. Oh, all those uh, Maria Ford films. Yeah, I used to like a lot of those. And then there was vampires involved in some of them. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not all of them are terrible. Some of them were watchable. Yeah. Some of them were okay. But there, there was a whole thing of this. There was even around this time period, as I said on the outside, I just read yesterday this book. It's a book a collection of adult film reviews by uh, this gentleman, a Danish man who passed but a friend of his had had it published and i just read around this time period there are like two or three pictures made with the same exact story except they're adult films so it's actually so they're adult films so we're actually not going to skirt around the fact that well it's a hollywood picture you know so this is yes so what this is is brian de palma wanted to make an adult film to be viewed by everybody he thought he could do a crossover and columbia said fucking kidding <laughs> so he had to go back and like he couldn't use the original actors he wanted to use and he had to retool everything probably one of his early pictures did not make any money really actually they made less money than their budget and then he followed us up with her a very strange picture i i didn't like it all oh yeah wise guys 1986 who farted and so concludes the plot of this bizarre detour into comedy featuring our Arnold Schwarzenegger show's twins Danny DeVito and Lou Reed lookalike Joe Piscopo of zombie buddy cop film Dead Heat as a pair of Italian and Jewish low-rent mobsters. Despite being total schmucks whose duties include shit like feeding the capos Dan Hadai of our Clint Eastwood show's tightrope's fish or testing bulletproof jackets while the rest of the gang shoot at them, he hands him a shitload of cash to bet on the horses, which he rigged in anticipation. Unfortunately, they second-guess the bet because he always loses at the ponies and wind up owing him millions. Naturally, they spend the rest of the film on the lamb trying to get the cash to pay him back or cut a deal to get back in good graces, finally winding up staging their own murder, which also gets botched. Lucky for them, the couple breaks all logic by showing up to see the deed done himself and asks for a light in a room filled with gas. The two get away happily to co-own a deli. Avita's Patty Lapone, Harvey Keitel of Saturn 3 and the Bad Lieutenant, Ray Sharkey of our Klaus Kinski show's Love and Money, plus Cindy Lauper-Pal and Mario from the live-action Super Mario hours, Captain Lou Albano, all appear. Wow, this was just... It's sad. It's a really sad attempt at a comedy. It's just so 
beyond not funny. I mean, what? I don't even know what to say about it. I mean, if you really want to see uh, Danny DeVito and Captain Lou there in the same movie, but otherwise, oh my God. It, it makes the Super Mario Brothers how many are like a genius. I mean, the potential story-wise, I mean, I'll be kind to this one. The potential is there on paper. I think, you know, you got to remember that Brian De Palma was a big film school guy. And, you know, he's probably going to, he probably knew Marty Scorsese for years, which explains why Martin's Scorsese's parents, his mother and father, are cameoed in the birthday party scene. Mmm, how'd that happen? So, but yeah, I mean, you got Harvey Keitel, Ray Sharkey before he died a junkie death, Dan Hedaya, Lou Albano, Julie Bavasso, Patty Lapone, and all the Broadway coke addicts. Um, <laughs> all I can tell you stories about Patty Lapone. You should. I used to, the, the theater <laughs> audience or gay fans would probably love that. <laughs> yeah, she's, yeah, yeah, oh, you know, actually, they're so scary, you may not want to hear them. <laughs> Frank Vincent recently passed away, you know, from um, Sopranos and shit like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I saw this. I saw, I think I saw it on tape or something. I don't know. I wouldn't go see this in theater. I was like, what a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> That was my impression. Like, oh my god! I was like, oh my god! So, uh, I don't know. He was on a roll the next year. The next year, he makes an amazing picture. All right. So, I did not see the next four films, but The Untouchables, Casualties of War, The Bonfire of the Venice, and Raising Cain. So, those four are on you. I'm hanging up. <laughs> you did not see The Untouchables? Nah, I went all the way up to Carlito's way. You know what? I saw The Untouchables on HBO back, you know, when it came out. But yeah, not since then. Okay. <laughs> screenplay by David Mamet, uh, famous Broadway, off-Broadway uh, writer, director, and director of films. So it's a revival of the old TV show Robert Stack, Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, who's really quite good. Sean Connery is the Irish cop. Robert De Niro, all fat-suited up as Al Capone. Andy Garcia, Billy Drago is Frank Nitti. Actually, he's pretty good in this. Gotta say, it's it's supposed to be Costner's picture because he plays Elliot Ness, and it's based and actually supposedly they made based this on the Elliot Ness's autobiography and not the old TV show. Robert Stack, yeah, Robert Stack was there. Um, but the movie's stolen by by a gung ho performance by late period Sean Connery as an Irish beat cop who's who Elliot Ness sees like he could trust him and he has honesty in him. And it, actually, it's Connery fucking one best supporting actor. You know, good for him. He won something, you know, while he was alive. A lot of people get awarded these things posthumously. Mm-hmm. Other guy who steals this picture is De Niro. Totally, you know, like he did for, re- you know, this was the period when he wasn't young. This is 1987. 1980, he made Raging Bull. He lost a ton of weight to play a bantamweight. He gained a ton of weight to play the same guy as an overweight fat guy. So he lost that weight, and then he gained weight, and they had to be fat suited up to play Al Capone. And it's not good for your health. I can't believe the guy's still living. It's just not good for you, you know? You can't gain weight, lose weight like that. Uh, Where's well, a method actor, right? Yeah. <laughs> but he is pretty terrific in this. And, and, you know, between De Niro, I know you're not a fan of, and I'm going to I'm gonna do a Malcolm McDowell on you one day. I'm going to come over there with some fucking tape and attach you to a <laughs> chair. 
I'm going to force feed you Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese movies three days and pay your wife to go on vacation. Is it going to be like opera where you're going to have the little needles? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You won't be able to shut your eyes. They're going to give you a straw for water. <laughs> and don't ask about the bathroom. We're not even going there. So, so nah, it's a great movie. This is a great film. It's also brutal. It's brutal like Scarface in a, in a particular way. You didn't see Casualties of War, correct? Uh, no. That's that's a really it's another movie like for it's a it's a Vietnam War picture and it's you know like Stone did Pl- Platoon Oliver Stone did Platoon and uh, this is Brian De Palma's version of Casualties of War. What this is about though in particular this is linked to the Miley massacre where the um, people you know the soldiers just couldn't handle them they stabbed and they go into a village and. They rape and murder, and they just lose their fucking minds. And the rest of the soldiers have to decide, do I support my friends, my fellow soldiers, or do I say something, you know? Yeah. Michael J. Fox, amazing in this. He's really, you know, the guy was an actor. He was good. Sean Penn, well, you know Sean Penn's good. John C. Riley, John Leguizamo. John C. Riley. I've been watching some bizarre thing they have on HBO Max where he is, like, he has to be, like, autistic or simple or something like that. And he goes around and does... It's making fun of the old local cable TV shows. Those really mm. shitty ones that, like, Joe Blow puts on and why is he even on air? Mm. And he goes around and interviews real people and get, you get this, like, live-action reactions. Like, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? Almost like Borat, but not as mean-spirited. It's so strange. <laughs> Forget the name of the damn thing. Oh, check it out. That's the name of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've heard about that. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, some people are doing some strange stuff and getting away with it. It is. It's really bizarre. I'm like, okay... So this was, people were shocked when this came out. Oh, it's got an Ennio Morricone score, too. People were shocked that, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff was said after the war, Vietnam War, about incidences like this where, you know, American GIs would lose their shit, go into villages and just kill kids. Well, you know what it was? It was because the Viet Cong were doing this crap where they would send, like, little girls and, you know, kids and whatever the hell up to people, you know, like an old peasant woman or something, and she'd be strapped with bombs, like a kamikaze mission, and just blow them all away. So then they just started getting crazy and just killing everybody. They were killing everybody. They were also raping the women and children. Yep, yep, it was bad. So it was bad. So uh, that's why it was called Casualties of War, and uh, it's a rough picture. Another playwright, David Rabe, wrote this one, and... uh, it's pretty shocking. It, it, you know, it, it made less than its budget. I remember that. It's It's been well-remembered for years since. I, how good Michael J. Fox was in this. You know, it's it's sort of like the kind of picture, like, do you say something or do you keep your mouth shut? Did you see Bonfire of the Vanity? The next one I get to is Carlito's Way. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of sad to see any Bruce Willis movie nowadays, uh, being that he's been diagnosed with this debilitating illness. Yeah. You know, and you see, you're seeing something from, you know, well, not every film Bruce did was great, and this is one that wasn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, wasn't like Tom Hanks like, in this thing, too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tom Hanks, Melanie Griffith, Morgan Freeman. It's got a good cast. It's based on Michael Christopher's The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. Michael Christopher, for some reason, Brian De Palma, at a period in his life, decided to work with all these Broadway and off-Broadway uh, writers. These guys were actually, they were writing plays. I kid you not. Serious. They were writing plays. They were well-known playwrights. They were not screenwriters. But he went to them and said, there's this huge 
unadaptable book by <laughs> Tom Wolfe, who Tom Wolfe wrote the right stuff, the famous, and that's a great film. But Tom Wolfe wrote a lot of unadaptable books, and Bonfire of the Vanities is one of them. It's about rich fucks and the people we don't give a shit about. In this case, it was like Wall Street bond traders. We all know how well we all love them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a long way from the electric Kool-Aid acid test, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yes, which is a, another terrific book. Uh, that and the right stuff are terrific books by Tom Wolf. So Michael Christopher, a Broadway writer, off Broadway writer, is like, okay, you're gonna pay me. I'll write. I'll, I'll take. I'll give it a shot. You know, this is the first huge bomb of uh, of Brian De Palma's career, where you know, they made a fifty million dollar budget movie, and they're like, with Bruce Willis, who's like top of his game now. You know, he just did two Die Hard pictures. He's like the Christmas guy. And and all of a sudden, like, and Tom Hanks, who's like, people starting to take serious, right? Mm-hmm. That was around that time, yeah. And then this 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 bank's fifteen million dollars. Nobody goes to see it. Like, <laughs> what kind of shit is this? <laughs> because the only movie about Wall Street to ever make any money was Wall Street. Yes, an amazing performance by Michael Douglas. Yep. We could, we could do them both at the same. No, not that didn't sound right. No, <laughs> we could do a Michael and Kirk show. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> that sounds so wrong. <laughs> Especially as they're like, well, Kirk looks great without a shirt. <laughs> like, I mean, that Lewis. It's just some. Yeah, I'm sure there's some pervs listening to this. I mean, what you said. They got knocked my fucking. <laughs> gonna wear Kirk Douglas suit. I know it. I feel like shit, but I'm, you know, making people laugh. <laughs> All right, so Raising Cain, did you watch that? Nope, I'm going to call it over. Okay, this is another one of these sick bastard movies. This is a bit better because John Lithgow plays uh, a... <laughs> it's another one. I don't want to give away a lot, and you really should have watched this one. Okay, there's no way around this. John Lithgow plays a multi-personality disordered person who and he's a psychologist who's a psychopath as well as possibly a child rapist as well as a rapist of of age women and it's a very strange sick film (laughs) we're back to that the greg henry from body doubles back and uh lolita devadovich the uh kind of petite busty woman who uh popped up out of nowhere from adventures in babysitting uh (laughs) But, oh, yeah, that, was, that wasn't even a joke, but it was, right? Was in Blaze with Paul Lobin playing the titular Blaze. Ah! And, and uh, JFK, she died, apparently, uh, I believe she did, uh, at a younger age. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so, and Steve Bauer is back in this thing. And, you know, great Pino Donaggio score, a bit short at 90 minutes. If you remember... John Lithgow. Did he just come in for, like, his most twisted films? Because Session with that whole incest thing, and now he's with this one with, like, child rape and granny rape, or whatever the fuck's he talking about here? <laughs> What's up with Lithgow? Right. Well, <laughs> okay. So, if, if you remember Lithgow from... Obsession. And Blowout. Blowout. Yes, you're right. He was in there. And Blowout. And so, we're just going to up the ante and just make, you know, he, guy's good. You, can, you, you can't knock that, you know, and, and he, he's a good actor. Yeah. And for him to play five or six characters, and we don't know who any of them are, you know, including a, a seven-year-old, a middle-aged woman. I don't know. <laughs> also, he, he's a child stealer. 
along with a, a female woman in the cast, or may may not be, I don't want to give too much away, who steal children for devious purposes. It's just a really fucked up kind of weird movie. And part of this goes back to his childhood and multiple personality disorders on children and how it affects him as an adult. How this guy ever became a doctor? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> um, it's a very strange movie. I think you should probably watch it when you get a chance because you missed it. Okay. But, uh... I'm just hung up on the female woman in the cast. I was like, is there a male woman? <laughs> I know, that's fussy. <laughs> Carlito's Way. Okay, so Carlito's Way, 1993. I ain't saying that my way would have been different had my mother been alive when I was a kid. That's all you hear in the joint. Oh, man, I didn't have a chance. No, no, bullshit. I was already a mean little bastard while she was alive. Al Pacino, who we did a whole show on, is a gangster who gets out on a technicality, intending to keep his nose clean. Of course, like that stupid Wesley Snipes film, Hard Luck, that we covered in our Snipes show, he winds up pulled in to attend a drug deal that goes wrong, leaving him with new blood on his hands and flush with cash. He buys a nightclub and keeps refusing to go partners with up-and-comer John Leguizamo, the rich Republican fucks Tony who hasn't figured out he'll never be one of them in Land of the Dead, and also Luigi from Super Mario Brothers, which lands him in increasing trouble. First, Spicoli, the poor man's Belushi from Fast Times at Ridgemont High himself, Sean Penn, who puts himself on a bald wig and Art Garfunkel Fro to play his sleazy lawyer, does too much blow and pulls a gun out of the mouth of Luguziano. Pacino stops things from escalating but loses some of his goons for letting this kid get away with disrespecting him. He starts fucking Luguziano's stripper girlfriend, Penelope Ann Miller, from our Arnold Schwarzenegger show, Kindergarten Cop, and winds up knocking her up. Meantime, the mobs start moving in on his operation. They rough up Penn, and since the feds are sniffing around, he cuts Penn off to avoid further trouble. Penn turns on Pacino, delivering false evidence, and it all keeps going south until Al is food for the fishes. Yay. God damn, I hate these stupid-ass derivative American mob films. Give me a Damiano, a DeLeo, or even Lindsay any day. This shit is just depressing. It's boring, and for me, it's unwatchable. Maybe if you never dance with the devil in the pale moonlight, so to speak, this shit may seem exotic and exciting to you, like suburban white kids who fall for all that gangster rap bullshit, or a housewife, like, ooh, what adventure could I have in a romance novel? But I've had a colorful enough youth in the early adulthood that this stuff is boring old hat and of no interest whatsoever, not to mention being miserable and fatalistic. I have no idea what people see in this crap, but everyone seems to absolutely love it. I don't know, count me out, I'm just not impressed. Ah, oh, but you like Scarface. Yeah, for what it is, but, you know, it's, like you said, it's hard to watch at points. <laughs> and it is. Yeah, no, it's, it's not like Scarface. Close, but it's not like Scarface. Yeah, no. And Scarface was better. <laughs> I I like that Pacino's, although he's, although he's playing another, you know, kind Latino of, again. <laughs> another ethnic role, let's put it nicely. He's not going as overboard as he did before. No, and, not at all. He's he's doing fine with it. He actually looks quite good in this. You know, it's that uh, you know that uh, touch of gray. You know, get that get that gray out of your hair. And uh, he's aging well in this. John Penn, who's doing well, and whatever happened to Penelope Ann Miller? I don't know. She was hot for a while there. I mean, hot in terms of films. I'm talking about. You know, it's a big big name. Uh, John Leguizamo. Nice to see uh, all the way midway down the cast is Louise Guzman, who's now enjoying. Success finally as as uh, Gomez in uh, Tim Burton's Wednesday. You know, like, all right, you've been at this long enough. You know, good for you. You know, <laughs> no, people may not agree on the casting for that, but what the fuck? You gotta do something different sometimes. 
I'm not a huge fan of Carlito's way, but three years later, a big surprise. Yes, out of the blue, practically. 1996, Mission Impossible. And in 1996, the Palm was chosen to kick off the Mission Impossible film series, which actually also kicked off a second win career for 80s leading man Tom Cruise, Lestat of Interview the Vampire, and a Stanley Kubrick show's Eyes Wide Shut. We discussed the original series with Martin Landau, Peter Graves, Barbara Bain, and company, and its short-lived but likable late 80s revival, and in fact, these films in our Mission Impossible show. But this one casts asshole right-wing fuck John Voight, <laughs> whose only contribution to the world was siring Angelina Jolie in the Graves' role as Jim Phelps. And beyond all credibility, the stunning and much younger Emmanuel Bayard, who I used to have a major thing for in films like Uncle Nive and The Silly Date with an Angel. Plus, Brat Pack also ran Leo Estevez of Repo Man, Breakfast Club, and the detestable yuppie downer, St. Elmo's Fire. Bitter Moon's Fiona, Kristen Scott Thomas from our Rowan Polanski show, Vanessa Redgrave of our David Hemming show's Blow Up, A Quiet Place in the Country, and Murder on the Orient Express from our Sean Connery, Jackie Bissett, and Tony Perkins shows, Mission Impossible film regular Ving Rhames, also of our Stallone show's Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, and Jean Renault of La Fin Nikita and Wasabi. And if you want to know why Trump's stealing all those classified documents, many of which are now quote-unquote missing empty folders is such a huge deal, watch this film. Because that's exactly what it's all about. A rogue IMF team stealing the list of federal operatives, spies, placed on missions or as sleepers in global hotspots. Cruz's team is taken out one by one, and he's suspected of being the Trump selling this info to the highest bidding totalitarian government. The conceit of Cruz being attacked on all sides as a sort of rogue agent continues throughout the series, right up through and beyond my personal favorite, MI5 Rogue Nation. The film series would develop to bigger thrills and more expansive Bondian locales and aesthetic as we went on. But this is a good start, and it's by no means am I going to take away from this film. I did enjoy it, and it still holds up. No, it, it's a good film. I found re-watching it. I've seen it several times since the first time I saw it. It's good. The train sequence at the end is good. A little early CGI there. It's all right. You know, it was early days. I love Sean Reno, personally. and, and I, I, That guy is such a terrific actor. And uh, Crimson Rivers, great film, too, from him. It was so glad to see him in this, but so kind of pissed to see him in the role he was given. He's a disavowed IMF agent, but then he's a traitor. So I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> Interesting, Henry Zizerny as Kitteridge is in this. Uh, director of IMF, who turns out to be a complete dick, because he returns in number seven, which comes out next summer. Uh, Ving Rhames, who was in every one but one, and was in the pretty good Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead, amongst other things over the years. He's I saw that in the theater. <laughs> yeah. All right. Not bad. Uh, it was okay. And, and, and Ving, Ving Rhames hangs in here as Luther, y'all, and interesting. What a... You mentioned Emilio Estevez. He was fine. You know, it's all right. They killed him yeah. in the first 15 minutes. <laughs> it's a good starting off point. It's a good starting off point. And you know, it's funny you mentioned John Voight is what he is. <laughs> and it's a funny thing was, I I think everybody was shocked what they were doing what they were doing with Jim Phelps. There's a big a big fan favorite for the Mission Impossible series over over all these years. Yeah. You know, Peter Graves played him. Exactly. What is really cool about it is, is they used the Book of Revelations as a lot of a lot of 
trickery, a lot of a lot of shit. What I think that might have come from was wasn't that whole Umberto Echo uh, and what's the other guy? Name of the Rose. Yeah, well, Name of the Rose, but I'm also thinking of the Da Vinci Code and all that kind of stuff that came up before oh, that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. kind of conspiracy things, like oh, look, these ancient documents are giving us a code that we can translate to I don't know what the hell, find aliens or some shit. It worked <laughs> here because it was pretty clever for a spy film. Oh yeah, you know, no. who does that? You know, fit right in. Yeah. But there was a lot of those going on at the time. That's where I think that came from. It's the beginning of a good long series. Yes. So I did not see Snake Eyes from 1998, but I did see Mission to Mars in 2000. Okay, hold on. So Snake Eyes was not a bad picture. I haven't seen it in a long time. From what I remember, it was like Nick Cage, Gary Sinise, Carlo Gugino was pretty hot. Gambling. It was a gambling movie, but that wasn't it's the whole story. It's a gambling movie. It was also about dark things in New Jersey. Gambling, crime, crime lords. You know, guys, I would do you a disservice and everybody else if I tried to remember what this was about. But I did say it. I just can't remember. Mission to Mars. Yes, so Mission to Mars. De Palma plays hired gun for this Disney project when the original director walked over all the budget being wasted on crap CG, leaving little to work with for the cast and crew. As such, there's not much of his Hitchcock obsession about this, or even his American mob movie sideline. It's an anomaly in his career like his 70s glam rock oddity Phantom of the Paradise, but with even less investment. As such, it's further filled with obnoxious right-wing actors like Tim Robbins of Twister, The Player, and Jungle Fever from Michael Crichton, Whoopi Goldberg, and Wesley Snipes shows, and Gary Sinise of No Notable Credits and Much Scandal, plus Rhodey from the second Iron Man film forward, Don Cheadle, and Kim Delaney for Chuck Norris shows The Delta Force. It's another one of those drugged-out, rich right-wing fuck fantasies about colonizing bars because their corporate butt buddies are so determined to destroy this planet. Suppose that we all descend from Martians and Sinai's wants the state to be one. Cheadle is the lone survivor of the Mars flight Lance Bath blew seven million dollars to get on, who the Republican members of the cast head out to ostensibly rescue. Yay? Fifty years ago and in a less oppressive studio's hands, this could have been another Martian Chronicles with a whiff of our cubic shows two thousand one. But bad mainstream casting by the most milquetoast and fascistic of multimedia corporations, plus a director who's rather disinvested in the final product, do not lend themselves to art or thoughtful existential statement. It's really totally avoidable. It's not the worst thing you've ever seen, but it's just junk. I think you're way off on Gary Sinise. I think he's pretty left-wing, so I, I will say that. And wasn't Tim Robbins married to... Susan Sarandon for a while, but yeah, he flipped. He flipped? Okay. All right, so, all right, um... Yeah, I know. Uh, this is screenplay by the comic book guys, the Thomas Brothers. Jim and John Thomas. You know, we're, we're, oh, Roy Thomas was in comics. I don't know what those other guys. Yeah, no, they, uh, yes, they started out in law school, started writing comics, Two-Fisted Tales. They wrote scripts. They wrote the original script for it. Commando. <laughs> that's, a comic, that's a comic for you. We did our Schwarzenegger uh, show with that one. Yeah, so... I mean, Don Cheadle's always fun to watch, and Connie Nielsen is always fun to watch. I, I, I watched this a while back. I can't really say much, but I like Femme Fatale. Yeah, Femme Fatale. The much overpraised and decidedly overused Mystique herself, Rebecca Romage and Stamos, although I will admit she remains leagues above the annoyingly skanky Hunger Games girl who took over that role, Jennifer Lawrence, is the lead in this subpar heist film. Despite being a supposed former supermodel, the rather butch-looking Romagin, with her Robert Palmer video haircut, is vastly upstaged by no-name stunner Rie Rasmussen as the barely-dressed model she seduces as part of the jewel heist. 
Ramajan betrays her partners and assumes the identity of a rando who looks sort of like her that commits suicide. Eventually, her partners get out of jail and come gunning for her and the goods, but not before interview the vampire and Expendables 3's Antonio Banderas as a Spanish paparazzi figures out who she is and blackmails her into fucking him. Yes, this is the plot. Wouldn't you? <laughs> I was about to blackmail her, jeez. There's the expected ending and a ridiculous caveat that the better part of the film may have all been a dream. What great screenwriting. This guy graduated high school English class, and this was the guy that gave us so many dark Hitchcockian classics in the late 70s and early 80s. It's so Hollywood-esque and very surface-level take on the Abalik that it was just like, jeez, what happened? <laughs> so what's your take? Well, I actually kind of liked it. I, I, thought, I thought it wasn't, like, not a brain drainer. I thought... <sighs> I thought she was kind of hot, and I thought uh, I like I like the picture where the guy's trying to seduce the woman, but the woman's way past him and way above what he's trying to do. So she's like, "What, well, y'all?" It's like it's gonna happen, but it's under my terms, that kind of thing. And also, I like the European kind of locale of it, you know, the flavor of it. Oh yeah, no, it's very glossy. It's very glossy. I I. I didn't think it was the stink of that people. I actually enjoyed it. I like that Rita Rasmussen, though. She was pretty freaking hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as brief as she was in there. So, 2006, now, the Black Dahlia. Boyfriend. They were all her boyfriends, so long as they wear a uniform. Betty believed in quantity before quality. You calling your own daughter a tramp? The always unappealing, hard-bitten, yet strangely popular Scarlett Johansson is the slutty girlfriend of our co-lead who makes bedroomized at every single guy she runs across, from boxers turned cops to mobsters. She claims she's a beard, as they supposedly aren't even having sex, but if you buy that one, I have some Oceanside land in Oklahoma to sell you. The three become a de facto menage a trois without the on-screen action, and our lead finds out she's got a nasty brand of a local pimp thereafter on her back. Meantime, the Black Dahlia murder happens, and they start tailing down leads. Hilary Swank of the Christy Swanson, Luke Perry, Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, and the next Karate Kid, tells them the late Dahlia was a fellow lesbian who did porno films. Was she the les that Betty and Lorna knew, or was she just some rich bitch with a taste for the lowlife? From here, things get really messy. Our co-lead is killed, Johnson and our lead fuck, and for the rest of the film is a fictionalized version of a still unsolved Dahlia murder involving Swank, who flips camps to fuck her lead as well, being the bastard daughter of the Dahlia's father, and Swank and the Dahlia look alike because he got horny watching his own kid doing porn, seriously, this is all plot and dialogue we're recording here, and found someone else that looked like her in some twisted de facto incest thing, there it is again, so Swank's mother kills the Dahlia over it rather than dumping the father or getting an abortion. Oh my God, Madonna mia! Uh, it doesn't make a wouldn't you? <laughs> no. It doesn't make a lick of sense, and it's not half as kinky as it sounds. It's just kind of an over-budgeted mess. That'll buy me up tighter than a popcorn fart, and that's pretty fucking tight. Swank, who looks like she's had a pretty hard life since making this movie, still comes off kind of hot in all the slinky black numbers. The leaves are a pair of no-names. Johansson is unfuckable a rough-edged man-eater as she ever was, and it never really works, either as some noir-ass falsified true crime mystery or as a period piece. It's clear that the Palma kind of jumped the shark as far back as Body Double, which to me was his last film of any real note or appreciable style. I mean, yes, I do like Mission Impossible, but that's a Hollywood thing. This is... Yeah, it's just emblematic of where his career started going. You don't like Scarlett Johansson? What are you, gay? Oh, God. She's a man-eater. I, no, no way. Uh, you scared your wuss. Not a 12-foot pole. I wouldn't touch that one. <laughs> Even Hillary Swank with that jaw, she could deep throat you, man. No, Come she on. looked fine there. I said that. <laughs> anyway, no names, Josh Hartnett, who is still, he has still, his ship 
will come in one day. Aaron H- Eckhart, I do like. I'm surprised you said that about him. <laughs> he he was in the. Oh yeah, you gonna make me choke on my own vomit. <laughs> he he was in the. He was in the Dark Knight and uh, Dark Knight Rises and a bunch of shit like that. And he's he's quite a good actor, actually. The Olympus pictures, Olympus has fallen, the Olympus is all kinds of shit. So I like that guy. I don't know. I think you need jerk this one. I think didn't agree with you, and you're like you hate everybody in it and everybody associated <laughs> with it. It's okay. I still like you. Right. So did you uh, see Redacted? No, I did not see Redacted. Redacted is a. I didn't see it either, but from what I could tell, in the theme of casualties of war, Brian De Palma decided to make a documentary film along those lines about the Iraqi war where U.S. soldiers gang-raped an Iraqi girl. Hmm. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, this this was not well received on a five million dollar budget. It made seven hundred eighty thousand dollars. I did see Passion. Yes, so 2012, the Palmer tries to do one of those 90s Skinamax late night erotic thrillers with too big a budget, too recognizable a name, and unfortunately, this really diminished results. Rachel McAdams, the boring blonde from Mean Girls and the Benedict Cumberbatch Doctor Strange movies, is supposed to be a cutthroat ad exec with a taste for kinky sex. She takes credit for her Ideas Woman's ad campaign for a new cell phone to get a big contract and promotion, all while fucking her boyfriend to boot, and then giving him the air when he's no longer useful as a spy. What a swell girl. The weirdly named Nomi Rapachi, Nomi Rapachi, from the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo films, is the odd-looking Ideas Woman who's clearly too old and pale-skinned to be sporting bangs like a 90s riot girl, who gets blackmailed with revenge porn and security footage, only to wind up the main suspect in McAdams' murder. There's a stupid twist ending we won't get into. Roll credits. You've seen much better films just like this, from hoary art house close celebs like Diabolique to period pieces like Dangerous Liaisons, but seldom have they been so low-rent and unsexy as this. McAdams is totally believable as a nasty bitch with no scruples, but about as sexy as a tree stump. You wouldn't believe for a minute that she's some irresistible seducer of men, or that she actually even enjoys sex, much as kinky variants thereof. She's more like the church lady, only a few years younger and with less of a body, even posing a thigh highs and a smoking jacket-style bathrobe. Epic fail in that respect. It's watchable dreck, but what a letdown. It's watchable, but... Uh... It's very similar to Femme Fatale in that respect, in the Black Dahlia. Yeah, except that by the end of the picture, it kind of takes a twisty turn. When It takes a twisty turn when you realize that Numi actually seduces Christine, Rachel McAdams, and kills her, and trying to blackmail her to become her secret lap-lap lover. I like Numi <laughs> Rapinci, and I think she's so super hot. Really? Even here, it's like, I just, I don't know. Like I said, she seems too old to be wearing bangs. Yes, yeah, really? I, I don't have to agree with you all the time, damn it. She's like super hot. I, I did not see Brian De Palma's last film, Domino. Which was Domino. Yeah, I didn't see that one either. That's, yeah, that's with Nicholas Custer, Waldo, who the fuck the guy is. He was in some show people like a lot. Like, uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This, it's it's going to come to me. Game of Thrones. Oh, God. Yeah. I saw one, I think it was the pilot of that, and I'm like, why do people like this other than the naked girl? I mean, and that was really it. I think if I talked to other people. I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of nudity. Okay. That's what my friend said. Have you ever said. seen a European softcore film then? That's what my friend said. There's a lot of nudity and rape. I'm like, uh, why would I watch this? I can go watch a Jean-Marie Pollardy movie. I'll enjoy it. 
You know, what the hell do I need this crap for? Well, not the rape. No, not the rape. It's about the nudity and whatever. I mean, I I saw this, and I never finished this. I'm sorry, Brian De Palma. (laughs) It's from 2019, so it's fairly recent. Actually, it's had a very low budget. It, it didn't, and no real big names in the cast other than that guy you're talking. About. No, it's other than Guy Pierce, and Guy was even slumming in this. Carrie <laughs> uh, Van Houten. They they shot this in Spain, and apparently some of it, I if, if I'm reading correctly, some of it was taken away, and and De Palma had to edit a cut because he presented like. A, three, a two and a half hour, three hour cut to the producers and like, are you fucking nuts? <laughs> so he edited it down to 90 minutes. It makes no sense. Anyway, it's, what is this about? It's yeah, cops in Danish cops. So Copenhagen, where's that? Denmark. Thank you. So Danish cops are dealing with assassins and Libyan immigrants and special forces, but we have a lot of English speaking people in the cast because it has to be an international film. I don't know. It's it's just it doesn't seem to achieve what is set, what he set out to be. If in fact the producers who were Danish, it looks like, took away his director's cut, it sounds like it would have been a series at that length. Um, if they took it away from him and he was just left to re-edit into a releasable 89 minutes, and then became a mess that it is. Well. No, I guess. Now, the last thing to... Uh, did you know he directed Dancing in the Dark, that Bruce Springsteen video? No, I didn't. <laughs> he did. And that, you know... Isn't that the one where he pulls Courtney Cox on stage? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's That's a good video. Fun. Yeah. It's a good... It's a pretty good video. And I'm like, holy fuck, I didn't know that. But they were doing a lot of that stuff then, because remember John Landis did stuff for... Uh, he did Thriller for Michael Jackson and... Yeah, yeah. Maybe even um, what the hell was that beat it? And there's a lot of like big name directors that were getting involved in music videos back in the '80s. I don't know what that was all about, but there's good stuff. There was, that. there was, um, there was a documentary. I, I, sorry guys, I couldn't find the title of it. It was a feature length documentary on Brian De Palma, which had him on camera answering questions about films in his career and sometimes bickering about how things did not go his way. Uh, <laughs> If I find out it was on the major streaming services, I didn't get around to it because, you know, when something's a documentary, trying to find a documentary is, like, not always easy. So, anyway, that's our Brian De Palma show. Yeah, and it's strange because if you look back, I was actually just flipping through this script as we went through here and all the movies, and you could see that, okay, he had his experimental period in the late 60s there, but basically he was an up-and-coming filmmaker, and he really did some great films and some you know popular hits and whatever all the way through body double he really okay sings vastly back and forth he changes genres but you know basically you can go straight through from sisters to body double and it's a strong career after that he goes into these big budget hollywood things all through the late 80s and stopping with mission impossible and then from there on it's just like he has no budget he has not that big stars and the films are just kind of you know and he only does six films in 22 years so I don't know if he's just had backed off, like, okay, I made enough films, I'm just, I can sit back and retire now, or if studios just said, eh, he's not bankable anymore, or if he's just disinvested from doing all these 90s-type uh, work-for-hire projects that he was doing. But something happened there, and I really think that when you talk about Brian De Palma, it, the part that matters is really that from Sisters to Body Double. That's where he shines. After that, eh, 
you know, he gets a few hits here and there, but it's kind of like uh, picking a stroke. It's like talking about Argento after he does opera. I'm like, well, yeah, I like Nonosono. Personally, I like Do You Like Hitchcock? Everybody hates that one. You know, one here, one there, but it just isn't the same guy. You can feel he's just... And not lost it, but maybe lost his passion. Maybe he isn't getting the backing. Maybe he isn't getting the necessary people. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad in that way. But he did have a really fantastic run, and these films do still really hold up and have a kick. Even if you know what's coming, sometimes like, jeez, that was messed up. <laughs> or like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. So that's why I wanted to give him a nod. I mean, mm. it always through his career, he would be equally like, oh, Brian De Palma and... Oh, yeah, Brian De Palma, whatever. He thinks it's Hitchcock, the weird sex obsessions. He makes the same movie over and over again. You would hear this stuff in critical circles, not even just among fans. So I think that he was better than that. I think he was well worth speaking of for a certain long period of, like, where it was, 12 years, 13 years. But, you know, nowadays it's like, well, I guess like everybody else, you know, you, there's not much to be had out there in Hollywood that's worth a damn. Everything's a Marvel superhero movie, and that's about it. Well, or an Oscar bait. He is 82 now, so yeah. chances are... Yep. If he does any more, it'd be like one or two things, yeah. Yeah, if he does one or two things. And the other thing is, too, when you reach a certain age, a studio does want someone else on set with you that's also experienced in case something happens because you're at a certain age, you know, to continue the film. So it's like uh, all kinds of things. So I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It was born in Newark, New Jersey. I don't know about that. But that's like... Newark. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, interesting fellow. I don't know why he's not done. He's not very talkative about his career, except for this documentary I, I mentioned. And we'll be back with Tony Perkins yeah. starting up our season 13. Wow. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Mr. Brian De Palma. And next time we will be doing the estimable Tony Perkins, who's actually a much better actor and a more interesting guy than I even thought when I decided to do this show. So that should say a lot. And I'm the one that's suggesting them. <laughs> if you'd like to contact us here, comment, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on here, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. You can find us on Podbean, of course, at thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. You can look for us there and on Spotify and on Amazon Podcasts under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Or if you're a particular for iTunes, is ID 5534020044. So, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, anything else you want to close out on? Or... Are you there? Oh, no, because we always end that show with the same thing. And you could do it like at the end of the serial, like or one of the Star Wars movies, you know, like that crawl that goes up. Oh, the crawl that they have. <laughs> if this was a visual podcast, I would do that. Oh, yes. right. Yeah, but not visual. <laughs> we should do it visually in masks. <laughs> or, or have it animated and just put a cartoon head or something. <laughs> no, no, I'll go as John Holmes and you can go as Serena. <laughs> wow, that's messed up. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, on joke, that note. Joke. I know. <laughs> anyway. On that note. Uh, all right, so we will see you uh, for season 13 with the should be legendary, but the very interesting Mr. Tony Perkins. <laughs>
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today and my journey is far from finished, but I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the Katie, 
the career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Oh, before we get started, what new guitar did you buy? Oh, yeah. You remember those old Ricardo Montalban commercials back in the 70s and early 80s? And they used to make fun of, I think it was Eugene Levy on SCTV, the new Cordoba with, with the Cadillacs or whatever you're selling. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. That's the brand, Cordoba. What happened is for like 20 years, something like that, I got an acoustic guitar years and years ago to replace my old, I had like a practice one that my father handed me down. It was, it was a nylon string, but it was really crappy, but I liked the sound on it. I just liked the nylon string sound. Mm. But when I went to get an acoustic, because that was one of the you know, last things that I got before I you know, booted out of the house years ago and whatever else, and I was like, you know, because at the time I was still gigging out with people and I was, it was not that long after the band and all this kind of shit. So I'm like, you know, I want something I can hear on stage and whatever. So I wound up getting a more folky style. Uh, it's a Takamine, but, you know, it's a steel string. Good resonance, good sound, you know, whatever. It's, it's classy enough. But it wasn't what I was looking for. And nowadays when I play it, it's big. You know, not just the, the fretboard, but, I mean, it's got the big hollow body. It's kind of awkward to play. I, I do play it once in a while, but not as much as I used to. Yeah, I've got one of those, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I always really wanted to put fucking nylon strings on this damn thing. And I went and I was head in the back of my head, you know, that's not going to work. It'll never transfer. There's going to be something wrong. Maybe it'll screw up the neck or whatever. Just, you know, thinking of myself, not looking it up or anything. Well, we went to one of these things for Christmas every year, but we don't always make it. And this year, instead of just the usual choral stuff and the organ and all that kind of shit they do, they had some guy out there doing some classical guitar. And, you know, he, they brought out once or twice with the band, and he just did crap, they like little baby fills that were nothing. You know, pinched some harmonics or whatever the hell, and that was the end of it. But he had one solo piece, and it was, you know, the usual, like an Andres Segovia thing. They got the flamenco, Spanish, whatever the hell, that would write something, a semi-classical piece for guitar. And, you know, I wouldn't say he was like a master, but he was good. You know, it was a good sound and everything. I was like, you know, I really want to do this thing with the nylon string, so let me look this up. You know, can I just get it there and put it on there like I was afraid of? Or, you know, is it going to be a problem like I thought? So I go and took a look, and it's like, oh, no, don't do this, whatever, because it's going to screw up the guitar. Plus, they don't have the pins on it. You have to, like, wind them so it's not set up for that for the yeah, bridge. Yeah, yeah, he's right, he's right. So, yeah, I was like, ah, shit, that's exactly what I figured. I was afraid of this. You know, so that's why I didn't do it all these years. And I was always kind of back of my head, yeah, I should really do something with the nylon strings, but, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm kind of stuck now. So I was like, yeah, let me look and see if I can get one. Just to, no, like, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of fucking money, you know, whatever, but it's just something that I can play that sounds decent and will hold up, and it's like, you know, a nylon string guitar so I can get the nice sound and start practicing that again as opposed to just the electric. And I found this thing, and it's like supposed to be like a student guitar or some shit like that, but it's a regular full-size acoustic classical guitar with the nylon strings, and it's supposed to, it's actually rather resonant, it's got a decent sound, you know, it's, they say it's like actually top of the line for this kind of stuff, for some of us starting out or whatever, the teenagers when they're learning classical guitar or whatever. And it came with a gig bag, and nice. it was on a nice discount. I, <laughs> so I'm like, holy shit. Wow, holy shit. So nice, nice. let me try this out. And it just showed up today at, like, you know, 2-something. So I was tuning it up, and I, did, I I got a recorder for my phone, so I was trying some stuff out. I actually, you know, wrote myself a little song, you know, that kind of shit. You know, it's still awkward, you know, because you get lazy just playing the electric guitar. So not everything is... 
100% for me, for my plan. And of course, you know, where the acoustic guitars are, the 12th fret is like right up in the body pretty much. So I was like, ah, shit, I can't even go down there and whatever. But, you know, I was messing with that for basically almost up until the show was supposed to start. I'm like, ah, Jesus, like five or ten after. Let me go put this stuff away. And then I started booting up and I ran to the other issues. Oh, I'm happy for you. Good price. Yeah, well, you know, we playing electric guitars is nothing. It's just once you, you see, open the case, get it out of the case, turn on the amp, get get y'all set your amp to like, okay, I'm on, I think I'm going to play like this right now. So I do my amp settings. It's already, it's worse than setting up for Colors of Prague, but the yeah. backdrop, you know, it's like a half an hour, and you'll, you know, if everything involves passion, right? So when you, it's in your head, yeah, I'm going to play that. I feel like playing. It just takes so much time to set it up yep. for me, and then it's like, okay, and I wind up playing sometimes about a half hour, 40 minutes, and then it's like, well, it would have been a little bit longer, but it just took so much time. It's true. I mean, I actually, it's, it's the same thing back when I was weightlifting. My buddy who was, I don't say rival, he was my drummer and shit, he was my best buddy at the time, but, you know, we kind of pushed each other. It was like, oh, shit, he put on some little bulk there. I got to do something. And we would spot each other and whatever the hell else. We were kind of going back and forth with that. And then there was another guy who actually went on to become uh, Mr. Natural New Jersey. So I mean, he still competes, believe it or not, in, in the 40-plus range. But that was the thing. He was always, he had one set of weights that he would just keep unscrewing it, put the other ones on. Okay, now I want to put the 20s on. Now I want to put whatever. I'm taking yeah, up the 100. I'm taking it down. The, yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, by the time you do all that shit, I lost the urge. You know, I'm trying to go from set to set to set and then give it up. I'm done. And I used to go so hard that I couldn't even, I was, it was down in the basement of my room. And I couldn't get up the stairs sometimes because my legs gave up from doing all the leg work. So I'm like, almost like stumbling up the stairs and crawling like, ah, I got to get up there. So there's no way in hell I was going to stop for like five minutes to redo. Wait, what's this? Take this back off. Put this on. Yeah, so yeah. I had different sets, thankfully, because you know, my father brought some home from places he was working. He's got people and just give away everything. So I had my set. I had his set. I had these other sets he was giving me. And I would just leave it on. Okay, well, here's the set for this, you know, for doing this exercise. And set for this, doing this. Here's one for benching. Here's one for curling. Here's one for presses, whatever. And I would have different weights sitting there. That's the same exact thing. Because the other day, I mean, I started messing with the guitars again a lot more. And I had a one that I got that was like, a, they recommended another cheapie, but it was for like doing stuff like Hill Switch Engage. You know, I could just leave it detuned and play it there. And it's supposed to have a good tone. And they, the guy sold to me with the Line 6 amp, which is supposed to be the big thing for that. You know, next modeling amp. Well, that thing on it, holy shit. I don't know if I changed or it changed or what. But the strings were cutting the shit out of my fingers. And the fretboard's like too flat for me. I'm, I guess I'm just used to the Gibsons now. Or, you know, Ivan has Gibson knockoff, but still. And my other guitar, even, you know, okay, I can still play that one. But this other one, I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, the tone's not that great. It's, hey, it's giving me a lot of shit. I have problems with my amps. I had a couple of amps, and the tones don't always give me what I want to give. You know, you hear what I want to do. You hear that on like the third eye theme and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's not always giving me that tone. And then it turned out that, of course, they got active pickups and the fucking things. They're like, back when I got it, they're like, oh, you'll know when it's not right. Yeah, right. So <laughs> sure enough, the fucking batteries in there had corroded. So I had to, like, get them out of there, clean the thing out, put new batteries in, fix the string, whatever the hell. So a lot of work to get my real guitar again. And then I started playing with that. I'm like, okay, well, this at least sounds better now. It's got the tone back or things, whatever. But... Then I came on to this other thing where I was like, you know what, I really want this acoustic, so here we are with that. So the last couple of weeks, been all this guitar shit and trying to relearn some songs. I went back and tried to learn all these old rock songs. Hey, be thankful you're not fucking around with that 12-string. Like, that's a beautiful 12-string I have. The sound on that? Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, twelve strings. If they drop out of tune, and they are hard to play. <laughs> they they drop out of tune. I was mm-hmm. trying to do. Uh, don't laugh. Actually, it sounded pretty good, but I'm too embarrassed to do a video of it in case my hearing's off. <laughs> Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Oh yeah, and you got to do the birds. You got to do the Beatles, and you yeah. got to do Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So I, I I was like playing around with it the other day, but it took me like 40 minutes to get it tuned up. I'm like, it's perfect, and then like <laughs> one dropped out. Yeah, one dropped out. Yep. You know, luckily it's got a battery in there, so it's like. And apparently that happens a lot with these acoustic uh, classical guitars too. So I'm like, yeah. it actually did because you know, okay, I'm just starting it up. You know, they, they gave you strings. I had to tune yeah. them up. I got it nice. I'm playing it for like you know half an hour or whatever, and I'm like, this sounds out again. And <laughs> sure enough, I had to tune it up again. So. What you it takes do? a while, yeah, yeah. And if you put it down for a while, you know, I don't have dehumidifiers in my acoustics. I don't know. It's uh, I hear good and bad things about them. I you know. kind of want the humidity. I actually was talking to a guy that's trying to make himself into a luthier. He's also an IT, but I went up to his place, and he fixed up an old, I actually have a 1950s guitar, like a, a hollow body, semi, whatever, electric. Yeah. The electronics fell apart years ago, so I, that's why I never really used it. I always wanted to. It was like a rockabilly guitar. And it was actually handed down from my great uncle to my father to me. Well, I was like, you know, at least I'm going to hang this. I had to hang it on the wall. I'm like, yeah, at least I want this polished up and looking a little better so it's all kind of dusty and whatever. Maybe restring it. I don't know if I could do anything with electric, but let's do something here. He's like, oh, yeah, come on up to my place. So I went up to his place and chat him. You know, we drove all the way to hell up there and did something a couple of times, you know, three or four times. I went up there and he's working on sanding it and doing whatever the hell. So he got it all polished up nice. I mean, it doesn't, it still doesn't have the electronics, so it doesn't play that way. But at least it's nice and in good shape and hanging on my wall again. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> so much of that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. I love that Charles thing. I'm like, when, once it's it's good, even if, like, it's half a tone, like a deal. But when you, you know, when you tune it up, it's going to take a while. Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. Last time I played, it was perfect. Now it's like, you know, it was like a week later. Oh, shit. But if one or two strings, I got to do the whole thing. Yeah, come on. Oh, that's why I was going with that story. He has a lot of guitars there. He's he's a jazz guy. He goes out and plays clubs with little gigs and combos he's got. And he always told me, he's like, you know, I keep my bass in a certain whatever, but you actually want, because I was like, hey, you know, the summertime with all this heat and all that kind of shit and the sweat and everything gets to the guitar. It's like, no, you don't want them to be dry. You want to have some kind of humidity. So dehumidifier, eh, some people swear by them, but... This guy worked on a lot of guitars. He played a lot of guitars. He had a big collection. And he's like, nah, you really kind of want to keep them at a certain level of humidity, not less humidity. The humidity is actually supposed to be good for the wood. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's That was his take, and I just consider it, and I took his word for it. So I just leave mine out. I got them on, uh, well, okay, one of them's got a case, and the, the acoustic's got a case, and now this one's got a gig bag. But my bass and my uh, main guitar here. I just have them on stands. And actually, actually, this other one, too, that I was talking about, the detuned one. Well, they got the most on the wall. The the 12-string is too damn big because the neck, mm-hmm. you know, I put it on the wall, and I'm like, you know, this is going to rip. That was it. That was another reason for... I went there because I had it hanging on the wall because I had one of those things where you, it's got the switch where you put it in yeah. there and the, the little prongs go up and down. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, no, because the neck is, I think the neck started coming loose a little bit. He's like, that's not going to happen, especially with an older guitar. So that was part of what we did. We shorted it up. And he told me to get another bracket, which that's actually, we figured out. We put a bracket underneath with some foam rubber on top of it and store it that way. So now there's no pressure on the neck. It's just hanging there. So you might want to do that. And that's the slash Epiphone mm-hmm. at the Gibson price. But I get it. I get it. It's the, the fucking pickups are not a killer. Right. And that's, that's, I think that's the most expensive Epiphone Epiphone ever put up. Really? 
and I could see it. You know, it was, it's it's as, it's as Gibson as you can get. Um, that thing is so heavy. Mm-hmm. I it was so glad. I was like, you mean it comes with a case? <laughs> it's lined in blue velvet. Fuck yeah! Or is it red velvet? I can't remember. It's it's really velvet. I'm like, this shit stays in the case if I don't play it. Yeah, now you, you gotta. Know, you gotta, y'all, with that, especially with Crazy Cat. You know, <laughs> every so often, you know, I, I don't have a tree this year because she's, I had trees maybe the last three or four years, and this year she's like bouncing around like Ricochet Rabbit. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I guess we might. All well. right, so. You want to go off or just want to slide right into it? We might as well just slide right into it because we already checked okay. the recording. I assume it's okay. All right, go ahead. Let's do it. All right. Hello. Hello. So how are you feeling? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting a miracle. I was just <laughs> hoping it was passable. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's passable. I, I I did a Colors of Prague yesterday, and I, I was like... Hacking? <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's just low energy and i saw it but you know it took me two hours because i forgot how to do this oh really yeah i could not get this part working ah and i was getting little to no volume i'm like that's not right never had this issue before and we've been certainly doing these before i got sick and i was doing one about a week before tried using all the old stuff and nothing would work and then i said okay i'll try this and then it finally worked and i was like I spent two hours doing it. It's like, I'm already tired. <laughs> <laughs> that timed me out on a good day. you got to be kidding me. I hate this electronic shit. You know, for somebody that used to do all this IT stuff, I'm like, jeez. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's getting too stupid. I even pulled out the old Blue Yeti, mm-hmm. disconnected everything, but the it, it the computer found the Blue Yeti, but when I plugged it into the USB port, it's just I'm not getting any audio by speaking into it. And I'm like, oh, I, I just don't well, Half of the problem just now, I mean, beyond what I told you, is that I set it up and it gave me problems again with Skype Recorder because I'm going in there and the thing wasn't recognized my microphone. If I don't start the laptop up with the microphone plugged in, yeah. it doesn't recognize it. So I'm like, I can hear through it, but it's coming through the speakers on the laptop itself. So I'm just like, oh, that's no good for recording. I've had that problem before. So I had to like reboot the damn thing, put it back up, and then it's like, oh, now we need another update. No, oh, your programs are <laughs> screw you. Well, this isn't <laughs> working ideal. I do have these XLR from the mic into the Focusrite thing, so I'm using that to kind of mix it a little bit. But they're a bit higher than I would want them to be. But you know, what am I gonna do? Yeah. So about Sophia Loren, you crazy bastard. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's a lot of titles. Well, in the end, it's only maybe 10, somewhere around there. <laughs> That's a lot. I don't even know when. A, finding a time to watch those, catch up to those. B, oh, no, it should be vice versa. A, trying to find them from my end, because I don't have a library card. Yeah, that sucks. And the nearest one is downtown. They closed the local one due to COVID. They never reopened. Yeah. It's a nice one downtown. I don't know if they're doing that service, but even if I were to probably get a card online, will they ship them to me? I don't know. Yeah, usually they ship it to your library and you pick them up. Yeah, but the library here is closed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a nice little old-fashioned one downtown. It's like three stories. It's like being in a small New England town, but I think it was there twice, 
10 years ago, 20 years ago when I first moved to Jersey City. So so are they still closed down from COVID? Because, you know. The local one is. The local one is. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I might find some things on YouTube. I might find some things looking around. But those specific titles, I'm not sure. So that's what I was trying to say is, yeah, okay, if you really want to do it. But <laughs> I just can't promise with some of the other things we had. When, you know, nothing was written in stone beyond <laughs> tonight's show yeah. but with some of the other things we had discussed already those are a lot easier to do mm-hmm. even the ones that are a little tad difficult they're easier to do than her stuff and she was in after the fall of new york or whatever it's just a cameo i wouldn't even count that one it's just, oh you know. i didn't even know that see that's something i didn't know <laughs> and you know did you watch firepower yeah of course i got that yeah i was like <laughs> you know it I was expecting it. You know, most of those Sir Lou grade movies, remember when he was doing a lot of those ITC things? Yes. Yeah, we covered a lot of those. Yeah. And some of them were supposed to be shitty, and some of them were like, why is this not better? You know, <laughs> considering the cast, considering the, yeah, he spent money on the on the crew. And when I was preparing Firepower to be not good, mm-hmm. it actually was, I mean, definitely, and James Coburn lived for decades after that, but he just looked like he was not well or something you know you could tell when he's not on his a game but he was doing fine but i was like sophia has large bosom and <laughs> they, they let her go braless with that uh-huh. you know she's nipping out throughout the movie and i was like what is this about <laughs> does it matter <laughs> I'm, yeah i remember that about firepower no she's a good choice it's just that hard to find stuff like that so if, uh, you know even if i got started it's gonna be a while so letting you know about that. Yeah, no, that's fine. I just want to you know, make sure it comes sooner than later because, you know, sometimes we talk about stuff and we don't do it for a year and a half. I'm like, well, I'm going to have the most of this written. <laughs> yeah, well, I got notes, too. I don't write scripts for this stuff. I write detailed notes for the colors of products. I have to. And even then, you know, I find I make I, now lately I'm trying to be more careful. Yeah, see, that's what we used to do back when, and uh, people probably listen and know that. If you had anything, I might have, like, a note here and there just to riff off of. And nowadays, I'm like, you know, ever since we started doing the uh, the more detailed stuff, the character actors, probably even after we did Kinski around that time, you know, the Bond films, right. Kinski, I'm like, you know what, screw it. I might as well just, like, write what I'm going to do, like I'm doing a review of these things, and then we can go back and forth in improv, which is what we do all the time. But, yeah. What was the last one you put up, by the way? I forgot. Oh, jeez, I don't even remember, because we got... So I think about a dozen of them done, something around there, or we will by the time Tony's over with. Uh, and you know, I still gotta go edit those damn things. It's just you know, I'd rather get these as I'm watching stuff and still getting it before DVDs go out of fashion. These libraries stop having them and whatever hell else. And I got the time, so I'm like, fine, let's just blast through these damn things. Okay, and, no, I was just wondering because like they're all fitting on your hard drive. Yeah, almost? yeah, I'm good. But uh, that's what I was saying there on the sites. It's like, we're building these things up. We're not inactive. But maybe next year, by the time I start rolling, it might wind up being like a bi-weekly thing, or it could be, because we got that many sitting there. We already got like a dozen of them. Sure. So anyway. But yeah, I don't even remember the last one we actually put up. I think it might have been, whew, definitely over the summer, or maybe even the beginning of September. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. You know, I had a pod bean issue. One the last, not the last one. Hold on, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. Uh, not the last one, but the one before was Alan White, and there was no way I tried, and that was totally scripted. Mm-hmm. And 
It was a little under an hour. I could not put that up in Podbean because it's a video. And oh, that, yeah, more space, yeah. More space. And it's funny. I'm already paying this idiot's $40 a month, but my limit is 30, I think 30 and under or something like that. Okay. And I was like, are you kidding me? No, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, we don't do videos, so it doesn't matter. But, jeez. Right. Aren't, yeah, aren't you putting up through YouTube anyway? I put it on YouTube. Well, now I got it. It finally is working. Mm -hmm. They'll send it to YouTube. Okay. So, but I think is when it starts up, there's like a minute. It'll catch your face in the weirdest position, and it freezes that. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the that's the JPEG they use. Oh, awesome! Yeah. <laughs> that's why you got to take the picture of the CDs. Uh huh. And I put that in there. So for Podbean, it did it. But when Podbean uploads it to YouTube automatically takes about an hour yeah before it was quicker when it does that it doesn't include that jpeg so i have to go into youtube and make sure okay i want to use this yeah i actually had that problem a lot with third eye you know because i review like all kinds of shit and at one point we were doing oh jeez i still like one a month so i had you know like hundreds of freaking titles in there and it would always always pick the worst picture the worst album cover some friggin shitty peruvian black metal black thrash band or something where they had some kind of filthy cover and i would always censor out the really dirty parts but still that's the one they would pick or the one that was like super offensive like you know totally satanic over the top whatever kind of black metal and that's yeah. the one they pick i'm like fuck you guys <laughs> And they pick that, yep, too. They right? always pick it. Somehow there's an algorithm where it goes to the middle of whatever you post. So whatever that is, usually I'm lucky and they don't post band member pictures, but sometimes they'll do that even. I'm like, who are these weirdos? Why is this show? <laughs> so, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's actually funny that they give you, like, an awkward photo of YouTube. Uh, oh, yeah, I want to click on this. Look at this one. <laughs> Uh, trying to catch up on some reading and uh, what else? Uh, I only managed to watch one thing like in the last week. I just yeah, it's like I'm, this stuff. You know, is, I'm good, but uh, yeah, it's like I got people there. I appreciate it greatly. They're messaging me and calling and leaving me voicemails. Like, how are you? You got a minute to t no. <laughs> I'm tired. I don't. A lot of my. This has nothing to do with you. Yeah. It's just not related to you. But a lot of my friends are retired, yeah. out of work, sick with various ailments. Mm -hmm. So I'm struggling to stay employed. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, during this, a friend mentioned long COVID. And he goes, Oh, I didn't mean that. So I didn't know what he was talking about. I Googled it yesterday. I'm like, Oh, shit. Yeah. No, that's what I was worried about with you. I wasn't even worried about the COVID. I figured you'd get over that. It's the long stuff that's like, oh, shit. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant until I found out yesterday. It doesn't mean you have COVID for a long time. No. It means... There are after effects that are... There are after effects, which are exactly what I'm feeling. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they go away, you know, if you take care of yourself. And sometimes they're just there. They don't even know. <laughs> it's like, really? That's great. That's why it's such a scary uh, fucking thing to catch, and everybody's catching it. Well, you know, again, you know, it's... Uh... I guess my body was in worse shape than I thought. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I thought I was doing pretty good, aside from drinking and smoking, but <laughs> which neither one is an excess. You know, yeah. I'm trying to, but you know, but I'm thinking, like, oh, I got all these shots. I can go to a restaurant. You know, you know, you go to a restaurant. Everybody's got the mask off. Of You're you eating eat. and drinking. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And you know, a lot of the concerts we we did mask up, but there was only a few. But no, it wasn't that. Yes, it was that weekend after. Yes, because that was Thursday. If I got it then, I would have been hit Friday, Saturday. I wasn't hit with it till Monday. My gestation period is not that long, so yeah. uh, I don't know. Anyway, so check this and let me know. I'm just sneezing. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> Caught on audio. <laughs> <laughs> 